having our attention in the same location as our body, learning how to accommodate the pleasures and the pains of our lives, learning how to be emotionally articulate, being able to feel our emotions, and it's the byproduct of wisdom and an open heart. So what we do is we cultivate the conditions that lead to uh, being embodied, to being able to accommodate the different pleasures and pains that come. We create the conditions for us to be able to experience and feel our emotions, mental states, moods, and we, make, we create the conditions to be able to see clearly the nature of our life, moment by moment. The byproduct of that is inevitably we calm down. So a lot of our lack of calm, I would say calm is our natural state when we are in harmony with life, with nature as it's unfolding. That's our natural state, believe it or not. Don't believe me. It is our natural state, but we, um, we tend to spend a lot of time looking for it, looking for calm, looking for relief, and often the very activity of trying to calm down, trying to find calm, actually creates a, a sense of inner tension. So let the calm, the natural calm of your mind and body um, call you here today. So I'll just give, do a little experiment, and then I'd like to find out a little bit about you. So notice what your state of mind, notice what your experience is when you don't look ahead, when you don't look ahead to what's going to happen today in anticipation. You don't look ahead and you don't look back. You don't look, you don't try, you don't, you just drop your memories, your last memory, and before the next memory comes or before the next plan comes, you just stay here for a moment. So don't look ahead and don't look back. And just, the only thing I'll ask you to do is just notice that you have a physical body and know how you notice that. Don't look back and don't look ahead. And tell me what your state of mind is when you don't look ahead and you don't look back. Anyone willing to speak? Please. Well, I'm very aware of my body. Very aware of your body. And anything else? I saw someone else. Aware of calmness. Except. Because you're here. The body's still reverberating from the past days. Okay. Came here to forget about that. Yeah, and in the future, when those kinds of things come up, to be able to to work with them. 
Anyone else, after your last thoughts stop, before the next one comes, not looking ahead, not looking back, please. Aha, uh-huh. so that's a thought, though. That's... No, 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 I appreciate what you're saying, though. How hard it is, it is true that we don't stay here very long. But in that moment where you're feeling your body and you're not looking ahead and you're not looking back, what's your experience? It's calm. It's calm. Somebody said Empty. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Not? Not a bad empty. <laughs> and you had your hand up? Still. Softening. Okay, so we didn't really do, we didn't do any practice really. Uh, didn't build up our, we didn't build up our, our meditative chops just now. All we did is for a moment suspend our ideas, not look ahead, not look back, and just located ourselves here. And most, for the most part, there wasn't the level of agitation, restlessness, uh, suffering that we ordinarily associate with our, our minds and bodies. And, and this, is per, this is why I suggest that that calm is your natural state, open, empty, a good empty, um, soft, a little more easeful, a little more simple. And this is not something that we have to create. You do not have to create this. You just have to let your mind settle into your body. And why do we settle our mind into our body? Well, it seems that the, one of the number one causes, causes of restlessness and agitation, of dis-ease, is being disembodied, is not feeling our attention is in the same location as our body. And how do we know that? Because as uh, one wonderful, wonderful monk, a Thai monk named Ajahn Buddhadasa, who lived into his 90s, he studied the humans, the, the beings that came to him. He was one of the most venerated monks in Thailand the last century. And toward the end of his life, he was asked by some of his disciples to comment about humanity. He had seen so much and experienced so much. And he reduced his commentary to three words. What do you think those three words were? His comment about humanity was lost in thought. A pretty comprehensive description (laughs) in so few words. But it speaks to the degree to which we spend so much of our time in what I call virtual reality, the imagined world of our thoughts. It is a miracle that we can think. And thinking is one of our most wonderful tools, 
sources of creativity, it's a great thing. The problem is not with the fact that we think. So again, meditation is not about the work of quieting our minds. The work of meditation is to make the shift from being lost, absorbed in our thoughts, lost in thought, mistaking the, the, the reality of our thoughts for reality itself, making a shift from being identified or lost in thoughts to be able to notice that the thinking mind is thinking in the present moment. So waking up, being mindful and kind toward the thinking mind. But mostly noticing that it's one of the sense experiences that's happening in real time. So it, it is inevitable that because we have, from the time we were born, we have been basically encouraged to distract ourselves any way we can, believe it or not. So you will, you will find that the strongest habit of mind that you have is to be absent-minded, to be distracted, to, to have that tendency to be lost in thought. Today, however, we will exploit the moments that you are present. We will appreciate them. We will get to know the difference between what it's like when we're absorbed, what the effect is of being absorbed in our thoughts, lost in thoughts, and what's the effect of waking up to where we are. Because really, if you look at your life, this is a kind of, it's a little bit subtle. Your life is just a series of unfolding present moments. In fact, not one of us in our entire life has ever left the present. We are always here, but yet, in spite of always being here, does this make sense to you, that you are always here? In spite of always being here, we imagine that we are in a, a past that doesn't even exist. We're imagining, imagining a future that doesn't exist. It's a thought, it's a plan, it's a worry. We think that we are going, we're moving from the past through the present on our way to the future. So we imagine ourselves as on some kind of, some kind of conveyor belt, some kind of pathway. But that's another idea. Really, there is only, you could say, there is only us sitting together right now. Everything else is either a memory or a plan or an idea. Again, this is the, our strongest habit is to project this view that we have been somewhere and we're going somewhere. And it's wonderful that we can think about what has happened before in other pre present moments. It's wonderful that we can think about what could happen in future present moments. 
But those future moments, those past moments, do not exist as actual things or places. They exist only as memories arising in this present moment. So to inhabit our life, we don't have to go anywhere. We can't go anywhere anyway. So we might as well get used to the only reality where we actually live. And instead of making the past real and then chewing it over, being lost in it, absorbed in it, or making the future real and getting so freaked out about it or excited about it, we notice, oh, I'm thinking about the future. I'm remembering the past and I'm here. And when I think about the past and the future, it has an impact. I feel it in my body. And my body, whatever that feeling is, it calls me right here. Is this making sense so far? So from the beginning of this day, I just want to remind you that, um, that you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and you don't have to get somewhere. You don't have to get calm. Instead, you, you may think of it as settling back into the moment. Just letting your attention get used to being oriented to real time instead of the imagined past and future, even the imagined present. Just be present. Be, be present. And notice all of the ways that uh, all the, the tendencies of mind that tend to hypnotize us into thinking that we're somewhere else or that we're going somewhere else. So how far do you have to travel to become calm, to be present, to be awake or aware. How long does it take? You know, we often have this thought, oh, it's going to be so long before I can be calm. <laughs> How long does it take? One breath. Doesn't even take a breath, but it's, that's, a, that's a good start. So I'm curious, just so that I can speak in a way that, uh, that resonates some with your, your intentions and your needs. What brought you to this day? Anybody willing to say this day of practice? A little bit about what your intention is. Please. Waking up in the middle of the night, ruminating. Am I, and, it's my sleep? and it's killing your sleep, yes. Skills to calm the mind in the middle of the night. Okay. Yeah, everything we talk about today will hopefully help you, help you metabolize that kind of experience at night. Anyone else, please? Stressful things. Yes. Getting stressed and 
Yes, there are stressful events and she'd like to learn the tools to not compound the stress by, with reactivity, to be able to experience it with some balance and calm. Beautiful. Please. Some scary. You know, unfortunately, I'm not hearing you that well. Do we have an extra mic? Just one moment. This person here in the beautiful colors. <laughs> So I've been living in a home, I'm widowed, for 26 years. That is in the redwoods, in the trees, way the heck up the hill. But I don't really want to leave, even though as I'm getting older, it might be practical. But I want that to be my choice. And recently, there have been some things about the house, including the foundation and possible mold, that are like taking the decision away from me. So big stressors in your, in your home and, and things out of your control. That are yeah, and like you say, the future's not here yet, but I'm like, oh my God, where could I live? Where could I have a tree? You know? Yes, so, how, to be able to, how to be able to think about the future without, without as much anxiety and, and strategize and, and plan and respond to the situation you're in with, with less stress. Well, that would be great. I mean, because what I try and do is bring myself to the present moment and say, now, is eating this blueberry stressful? You know? Beautiful. <laughs> and it's like... Well, you've got, the, you've got one of the answers wait, so far. No, you know. So I know of what you're speaking. Yes. And recently, I've kind of like find the body just... You know, yes. the nervous system. Yes. Yes. Just... So everyone, several people, their nervous system is a little bit uh, supercharged. You and I, I just want to say that yes. I'm in Philip Moffat's Sangha. I'm in Philip Moffat's Sangha. You're in Philip's Sangha. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he was talking the other week about noticing the breath. And even we, if we just noticed that we were doing one breath, one inhale, something. And it's amazing how that's carried yes. over for weeks. Great. Even though I know that theory, hearing him say it again, I'm going, oh, I just noticed my breath. So I'd like to extend that. Let's just... Great. Beautiful. Um, maybe the person who's... Oh, yeah, did you have something? Please. Well, I just wanted to say I'm here for the joy of being in Sangha. I live in Montana. And you just happened to be the guy who's talking at the day I could come. You mean you didn't come just to hear me? Actually, I've heard you several times, so yes, that was part of it. Thank you. Glad you're here. So, um... I'm here specifically because I have something that I'm just ruminating over and over and over with. Yeah. And I am now in a battle in my mind. In a battle in your mind. That I haven't been able to, even though I do practice and a lot to a lot of awareness of the tools yes. that I could use, I'm so caught. Right in, this moment, actually? I'm, you know, being here is just such a gift and I feel 
already like, okay, this is a good place to be. <laughs> this yeah. could really yeah. help. It seems like you, you may need to just have that little cry. Yes, well, yeah. I do that so a lot. So. We, here I invite everybody to cry your eyes out. <laughs> Because again, this is one of the one of the ways that we tend to live in the second-hand version of what is actually going on, and the second-hand version is the the rumination, the thoughts about the the narrative, and this is not to get out of our thoughts, but it's to expand beyond that narrative to actually feel what the effect of that is and to be able to stay embodied. And often if we stop, like you just did, and just spoke from present time, you, f- you feel all that emotion that's there. And, and it, there is something about the support of being with others that allows that to, to erupt a little bit and, and discharge. And not so much for it to all go away, but just the effect of, of being in touch with with the actuality of what you're experiencing, not the second-hand version, often brings the insight, the wisdom, and the kindness that's, that's needed to respond to that. So I'm glad you're here. and can't say we'll resolve the issue, but we'll at least get real. Good morning. Um, I'm here. I'd like to learn to accept uncertainty of life better. Um, in a rational level, it's easy to accept and understand the uncertainty in our lives, but then in actual level, it's, it's harder. And also, I'd like to somehow learn to, um, to keep myself more open to the present moment as it unfolds. Yes. Thank you. Accept uncertainty and, and stay open. That's exactly the, the byproduct of being mindfully mindfully present is to be more resilient, to be uh, with all kinds of uncertainties, and to, to be open. So it's a moment at a time. So right now, how hard is that? Because we have no idea what's going to happen next. We can speculate about how this day is going to unfold even, but we're not exactly sure. So. And how do we accommodate that? So I appreciate your comment. Well, I'm I'm happy. You're, oh, you want one more? Hopefully, get from you uh, tips about how to teach. So one is by emulating you. But if you uh, can comment a little bit in a meta level about. How to teach this. How to teach this. Yes, thanks. Mm. I think, and I really appreciate the work that you do, and, and uh, I think that the best way to teach it is to, to actually know how to manage it yourself. And I think then your own voice will give you the, the you could call it the transmission of your own understanding, which is all that really transmits anyway, for the most part. And I will try to give a language that you may be able to use with your, with your clients. But a lot of it, is, it comes down to the things we've talked about already. And I will be following, and this is the methodology for our day, I will be following 
one of the two or three most famous discourses of the of the Buddha. This is a context of this is you know Spirit Rock is teachings. The core of our teachings is based on the the what's called the Theravada tradition or the earliest teachings uh, as expressed by the Buddha, the ones that are most attributable to what he actually said and the ones that are most cross-culturally consistent. And the Terav- Terra means elder, Theravada, the teaching of the elders. It's kind of the earliest teachings. And one of the most famous suttas or discourses of the Buddha is called the uh, Satipatthana Sutra, which is the sutra on the four foundations of mindfulness. So we will be navigating through the four foundations of mindfulness today. So mindfulness is the navigator of our practice and the calming of the restless mind. And the four foundations of mindfulness are essentially mindfulness directed to the body, So that was number one. Why do you think we attune to our breathing process? We don't actually attune to the breathing. We attune to the effect of the breath on our body. We feel the breath. Unless we felt it, we wouldn't know we were breathing. So we, so that's the that's the initial tool. But then learning how to how to accommodate the whole range of sensations in our body. So that's mindfulness of the body. The second foundation of mindfulness is called mindfulness of feelings. And it's not feelings in the Western psychological sense of emotions. It's feeling tones. It's the valence that accompanies every experience that you have of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral. Now, this may not seem like that interesting to study really carefully the feeling tones that accompany every moment's experience. But it turns out that those feeling tones are the, the trigger point. They are the, they are the um, you could call it, the ground of our entire reactive system, the system of reactivity, a system of liking and not liking, of wanting and not wanting, that expands in our emotional life into anger, frustration, craving, clinging, attachment, so many of the mental reactions. That becomes the third foundation of mindfulness. Studying moment by moment the state of our hearts, the state of our minds, the, the states of moods, mental states, and emotions. Learning how to accommodate those and understand them. And finally, the fourth foundation, that's the third foundation, mindfulness, it's called mindfulness of mind, but that includes emotions as well. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness, it's called mindfulness of the Dharma. It's taking the, the reality of the first three, of our body, our feeling tones, our moods and our emotions and our thoughts, and applying a continuous mindful attention so that we learn, so that we develop wisdom and understanding about these experiences. So the first three are just to get acquainted with, to be 
in a real-time experience of those first three. But the fourth one allows the intelligence that comes with continuous attention to see some common laws that are operating in everyone's experience, some universal experiences. We can see those kinds of mental states, for example, that cause suffering. We can see the kinds of mental states that bring more happiness. We can see some, some universal truths. That, so it includes the four noble truths. That's the fourth one. It could be a day itself on the four foundations of mindfulness. But it, the foundation of, this, of these four foundations of mindfulness, the foundation of creating the conditions that lead us back to our natural calm and peace, uh, all those conditions start with and proceed with all the way along the line with learning how to have our mind and our body and our body and our mind. And so when you were, I, for, I don't know your name, what's your name? Annette. Annette? Claudette. Claudette. When Claudette was told to just pay attention to her breath, you know, just one breath, just that one moment of connecting your attention with that physical experience of breathing puts us back in the same neighborhood as the natural peace and calm that is the natural peace and calm of our mind. So that may seem way too simple for some people, but we'll elaborate on the teachings, but it really comes down to mind and the body, body and the mind. You ready for some practice? Anyway, I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy for you. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, I've been leading, many of you, maybe some of you read my bio. I've been sitting since the 1971, been leading retreats since 1985, so now over 30 years, and I, my, my joy in practice and my confidence in practice grows every day because I get to see what happens when I have a, a big sample size of what happens when uh, people put their attention, locate their attention in the present moment, learn to be able to be embodied, learn to be able to be more emotionally articulate, learn to see how life actually is, not to be in so much confusion. And I've seen the, the, the tension, the, the stress, the, the, the tightness literally begin to melt away and what we and people many many people experience what we sometimes call the vipassana facelift where eyes get brighter and the lines get softer and, and so it's really easy to to be here with you because i just have so much confidence in it and there i also want to appreciate everyone for coming because your presence here is actually an act of generosity to other people because there's a one of the three what are called the three jewels of practice first jewel is buddha which means being awake so it's not just a statue or a historical person buddha means awake that's the first jewel second jewel is dharma dharma is truth the way things are and it also includes the teachings but 
Truth is, is you. Truth is what's happening in this living present. So very close. The third jewel is Sangha. You, you mentioned Sangha. The collective support of other people who are, who are wanting to, to be awake to what's true. And it's not just a, an extra thing called Sangha. It, it truly is, as one of the Buddha's disciples, Ananda, said to the Buddha, isn't it half of the, the awakened life having, keeping good company? And the Buddha said, no, not true, Ananda. It's the whole of the awakening life. So, so think of it today as you're here, that you're not only here for you, but you're actually here to support other people's practice. A very central part of the, of the teaching that liberate our hearts and minds what brings more calm is the, the ongoing practice of generosity, uh, on, ongoing practice of gratitude, all these heart qualities that, that spring from being present. Yeah. Even if I never mentioned them, you would start to feel this kind of goodwill if you're more present. You'd also, in that process, feel some ill will, because that's our, our conditioning. But the practice itself inclines toward being awake, toward goodwill, toward wisdom. And uh, so I'm happy for all of you. So let's sit. might want to find a, a posture and do anything with your body right now that allows you to, to feel a little loose. If you need to roll your neck a little bit, not too much. So as you settle in, I'll just share a little passage from the Buddha, just a paraphrase. He says, there's one thing, O monks, and for the purpose of, of us being together today, you are all monks, you're all renunciates of the, you're going against the stream of your usual excessive busyness and distractedness and you're locating yourself here. He says, there's one thing, O monks, that leads to, to calm, to focus, to awakening in this very life, to the liberation of the heart, to the sure heart's release. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So if you think of one thing that's most important, So in order to have mindfulness directed to the body, we want our body to the extent that it can be, since we've neglected it a lot, we'd like it to be inviting. So you want to find as comfortable a posture as possible. You want to let your body shift from side to side or front to back till you find that center point. And ideally, if you're sitting in a chair, it may, it may take a while for you to work up to this, 
but it's helpful if your back is free and your pelvis is kind of dropped, ideally your knees a little bit below your, your buttocks. Once you go from side to side, front to back, and you find that center point, then let yourself settle into a gentle stillness. And you'll find that a, the stillness, the gentle stillness of the body, not forced, the gentle stillness of the body will help to support a gentle stillness of mind. And the process of settling our mind into our body means to drop beneath our usual conceptual experience of our body and open to experience our body on the level of direct experience or sensation. So feeling your rear where it touches the cushion or the chair. until there's no more rear or chair, there's just sensation, pressure, heaviness, hardness, tingling, whatever that might be. And gently moving your attention to the touch of your hands, whatever they're touching, till you feel the experience of your the sensations of the hands until the hands begin to melt away and there's just sensation. The same with your lips. Till there's just sensation. Same with your eyes as they close softly. So there's just that touch sensation. And then from the inside, feeling that shape of your body. The field of sensations that gives the sense of a whole body. Just let your whole body fill your awareness. Let your awareness fill your whole body till you feel the aliveness, that living experience of being embodied. A combination of awareness or attention and feeling our bodies. So as you feel the gentle stillness of the sitting body, you'll naturally be drawn to the gentle movements that your body makes when it breathes.
You may feel the air as it passes your nostrils or upper lip. You may feel your chest or your belly rise and fall. Or you may feel the whole body gently expand and contract. However it is that you experience your body breathing, connect with that. Connect your attention with that. And sustain your attention through the duration of each breath. can accompany that experience with the knowledge or the knowing that I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out. And you will notice that some breaths are short Some breaths are long, some deep, some shallow, some rough, some smooth. We make no effort to alter the breath or impose any view of how a breath should be. We simply notice the way the body is breathing. And we simply use the experience of the breath to gently bring our mind and body together to create conditions for our natural calm and harmony and focus. So connecting with just this breath, however it may be, just this moment, So for many, not only knowing that you're breathing in and breathing out is useful, but also making a soft mental note, giving your conceptual mind something to do by applying a transparent, soft mental note of in with the in-breath, out with the out-breath, or rising, falling. Just a quiet whisper in the mind, 95% of your sensitivity to the feeling of the breath, 5% this little whisper in, out, or rising, falling, expanding, contracting. And this is simply a supportive tool to help you stay connected to this experience of your body.
As I mentioned before, one of our most practiced habits is to be distracted, absorbed in thought. And so you will quite often wake up to the fact that you have drifted into the imagined past or future or fantasy. That moment that you wake up to where you are, having wandered, is a moment of mindful attention, a moment to relax, to see what it's like to be present again. And so without any judgment at all, knowing that it's so natural for the mind to wander, without any judgment, we gently connect again with our body and breath. We do it so gently, very similarly to how we would put our new puppy back on the paper when we're trying to train it. Appreciating the moments when we wake up and in the service of staying anchored to the living present, we connect with our body and breath. Just this moment, just this breath. Sinking into the experience of the breath, feeling intimate with it, one half breath at a time, breath by breath.
Again, whenever you realize you've been lost in thought, this is good news. It means you've awakened. You are now present again, fully aware. Time to celebrate, relax. And on behalf of staying anchored to the living present, we connect again with our breath and our body as a support for being embodied and aware. Just this moment, just this breath. All of our life has come to this. Soft mind, yet alert, gentle attention, yet precise, intimately feeling the texture of each half breath, each sensation.
five more minutes. Begin the practice now. Every moment is a new beginning. Can always begin again.
pleasure for me already to sit with you and kind of share the silence. Although insight, maybe you've heard this before, but insight at the beginning of a practice period or at the beginning of our practice in general is usually bad news. Why is that? We have, to such a great extent, uh, been living a few feet from our bodies that it's shocking to, to then locate ourselves here and we feel the, the residue of the stresses of our life. We feel the tension, the tiredness, the agitation, the anxiety in some cases. But the, the good news is, is that we use all of that, whatever is felt, we use it as our, um, as our practice, as our, one, our reminder of our desire and our love of being present. Two, uh, we use it as the, um, because it, whatever we're experiencing is in real time, we use it as a guiding, um, as a guide to, uh, to, in some ways, bring us back to where we always are. But it is inevitable, given the way that most of us tend to live in some kind of disharmony with life, uh, often going against the stream of our, um, of our human nature, that um, somehow we, for the most simple way of saying this is we move way too fast. And I think our bodies function best in medium or slow. But most of us are zooming, and we're partly zooming because we're living on mental speed and often bypassing our organism's needs. So that's why people will often feel very restless or just crash when you start to... Anybody feel restlessness or dullness during that sitting? Just one or two people. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> So this is insight meditation practice that we use and there are insights associated with every dimension of practice and when it comes to mindfulness direct to the body, part of our insight is what's the state of my body right now? What's it like? What am I experiencing? And then as we develop this habit a little bit more, we start to see some common themes about our thinking. Just a little sneak preview. You will see the whole range of sensations that come completely unbidden. Sometimes achy, sometimes burning, sometimes stabbing, sometimes itching, sometimes tingling, sometimes soft, hard, contracted, relaxed. And our practice as meditators is to be able to accommodate each of those and not to uh, compound whatever stresses that we have in our body with strong mental reactions. But first, it's mostly just to experience the truth of what, what it's like to be embodied. Anybody want to say what it was like to be embodied for a, a little bit, this just short period? What was your experience? Please. Uh, 
He gets bored with the present, and then he gets bored with the boredom. So when you say you get bored with the boredom, what does that mean exactly? An itch arises and he says, yay. Right. Right. Yes, he finds the present aversive instead of calm. At first, because we are so habituated to needing things to be interesting and stimulating, and you can see the outer version of that in the, in the popularity of huge blockbuster films. It takes a blockbuster to engage us because our senses have gotten so dulled to the simplicity of life. And we... We've, we've lost that sense of awe and wonder at just even the fact that you could notice that you're bored or notice that there's an itch or notice that there's a sound. And it is a slow process of getting reacquainted with the life of the simplicity where the present does become so much more compelling and interesting that you won't want to be somewhere else. But that's a process. And when you say you got bored with the boredom, I have a hunch, and this is not critical in any way, but I have a hunch that you weren't actually experiencing the boredom. You were experiencing the thought of being bored. Now, bored, as we expand into mental states, that'll be the, the, a little farther down the road in our practice today. When you experience boredom, which is one of those common and inevitable mental states when things start to slow down, is instead of being in the idea of boredom and then Figuring out what's more interesting, we make a felt sense study, an experiential study of the feeling of boredom. Become interested in what it's like to be bored. And you'll notice it has certain kind of feelings in your body. And You may have never experienced boredom in your whole life, really. You knew you were bored, but you didn't really experience it. So we are wonderful we are masters at thinking about our mental states and our feelings. We're not very good at feeling them. So that's what we will study again a little bit more today is what is that like? Because so, speaking of a springboard or a launching pad or a, or a ground of, a, of reactivity, uh, unfelt feelings tend to be the, the ground or the, the launch pad for all kinds of reactions, all kinds of what you beautifully discovered is that search for something more interesting. That's called craving in the mind. That says, I can't be happy now. And our, my mind is telling me, I need something more, more interesting to make me happy. And that's the trick of the mind that makes us keep leaving real time for imagined places and things. And, that, and then we start living more in virtual reality. So thank you so much for your description. And hopefully in this, over the course of your practice, you'll become equally interested in boredom as you are in uh, an itch. <laughs> Please. Uh, it, wait till the microphone hits you. Yikes. Ah, uh, the microphone. Is that okay? Not, is that enough? I think there's something wrong with the mic. Or... That's, that's the chattering of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether boredom is actually a 
Well, that's Fritz Perl said, boredom comes from lack of attention. Can't hear you, I'm sorry. A lake of grief. Again, the, uh, he says he plunges into a lake of grief and sadness and believe that it's bottomless. Uh, but again, that's a belief, that's an idea, that's not the experience of it. So uh, what, we, what, we try to, what we try to do with our practice is to experience it. And we, is that me now that's making all that... Yes, the thought that the grief will never end is where we usually, we usually mistakenly identify with that thought. Instead of feeling the grief and recognizing it as we would any experience that you have, every experience that you have, including your whole life, is a changing condition. It is present some moments and then the whole life not, but... But everything is in a constant state of flux. And part of what relieves us of the anxiety that might arise associated with feeling grief is what relieves us a lot. Somebody's got to turn that off, if you don't mind. What relieves us is the, uh, the recognition that it is not bottomless, that everything is changing. And it gives us a confidence that we can experience things because they're always in flux. So I, I invite you, if to the extent that you can, to just don't listen to, or notice that story of bottomlessness, but try to take an interest in the actual feeling of it. I do take an interest in the feeling of it. But that... But, Uh, not to avoid, just to avoid the story of it or notice the story. Just locate yourself in the felt experience of what's happening. We're not used to it. And so at first it will seem that if I do that, I will drown in this. But I have total confidence that you will see that whatever experience you have is momentary. And I'm curious what you're experiencing right now. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> now, the beautiful thing about practice is, and you know, working with a group is, some of you will be uh, happy that I'm talking, and others will be unhappy. <laughs> and part of what we, your responsibility is to experience that happiness, and to remind you, I'm not always depressed or anxious. Or, and for those of you who are unhappy, to feel that unhappiness and see that that's also a changing condition. Please, over here.
you're very aware when meditating. If there's a sound that breaks into what? Okay. She became anxious about the sound that she was hearing and, and felt that it was interrupting your practice. So you may have heard this already, but we don't consider sound a distraction. We consider it the next sense experience to notice. And so if we notice it with that gracious, inviting attitude that our practice is to open to reality. And reality is that even if we're giving some selective attention to the breathing, sounds will come. Moods will come. Sensations will come. Thoughts and images will come. We try to, with each experience, be gracious with that fact. Notice that that sound comes and goes. And then, for the purpose of what we're doing right now, keep redirecting our attention to, the, to our bodies to start with. As we go along in the practice, though, when a sound becomes stronger than whatever your anchor was, we simply let the anchor recede to the background. We turn our full attention to the sound. And that becomes the next thing to notice. And ultimately, we come to a point where there's nothing that's considered a, a distraction if we are fully aware of it. Exactly. Exactly. And so, what, when we're trying to avoid something, we we're ten, the tendency in that moment is means we don't like it. We're reacting to it. When we react to something, it actually makes that thing more difficult. So what we're trying to do is turn toward whatever is present with a non-reactive, a gracious attention, an interested attention, and see that everything's changing. Then we don't have to, then we don't have to fight with our life, even in meditation. Please. Are not obviously there's a lot of pleasant sensations when I'm just sitting or whatever in my body, but a lot of the sensations that are feel, I'm feeling are not pleasant at all, and I don't know if it's even right for me to just like accept that and not shift away from that and try and make myself more comfortable. Like, yes. Did everyone hear his comments? And just like experiencing discomfort. Yes. Just meditate on it. Yes. Here's the, most, most of our, here's what Blaise Pascal said. All of humanity's problems stem from men and women's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. <laughs> if you sit quietly in a room with others or alone, you will feel your body. If you feel your body, if you're human, definition of birth, the leading cause of pleasure and pain. 
leading cause of, of some and especially when we start our practice, if we're not used to pra a lot of practice, a lot of what we experience is discomfort. We love ourselves, so we love ourselves, and one of the ways that we love ourselves is we try to, in every which way, to get away from unpleasant experience. But unfortunately, that increases the unpleasant experience. It makes us unable, it makes us reactive to unpleasant. So we do invite you. It turns out that the, the cure for the discomfort is to feel it. Not to make it go away, but to cure our, what, what gets cured is our reaction to it. So we want to, to the extent that we can, we want to, when we're uncomfortable, to say, discomfort's like this. This is what discomfort is like. And see if we can have discomfort and our mind not suffering about it. But we are, our strongest habit is to be uh, chronically uh, reactive to unpleasant. And partly because we're told every day that you should be able to put a lot of successive pleasurable moments together. That's the only way to be happy. But unfortunately, it hasn't made anybody happy. It's made us unable to be with discomfort. So that ideally, everything you described, if you could just start to take an interest in that, Having said that, there is a point where if you try to, if your mind is kind of weak or you're really tired and maybe it's late in the day or you're hungry and you try to stay with things that are uncomfortable, your mind will just crash. It will wither and you'll just, you'll have what we call a multiple hindrance attack. You'll want anything that's not here. You'll be averse to everything and everyone that's here. You'll feel restless, you'll feel dull, and you'll have, start to have doubt about your practice. But in the meantime, try to turn toward it. And when you're really tired, then shift your attention away to something else. Open to either find some, some place in your body that's not painful and just rest your attention there so that you can remind yourself that the whole body is not a, a body of pain. Or open to sound. This would be a, a time where you can actually open to sound as your primary anchor. Uh, or just make sure that you're attention is very welcoming because often what makes a tight body into a tight mind is that we're, we're observing it with a kind of tension. So you can soften your awareness. There are many different tools for that, but all of them are, in some ways, are in service of moving toward that experience but not turning it into a torture test. This last one, and then we'll do some walking practice. Is the goal not to scratch an itch? <laughs> yes, only if you want to be a good meditator, you can't scratch your <laughs> No, I think the, the goal is to develop insight into that. Normally, the moment the itch comes, we scratch. And unfortunately, that doesn't allow us to develop the capacity to be with itches in a non-reactive way. So you want to hover as long as you're comfortable and able to and, and feel that itch. And often you'll notice the itch changing, but you'll also notice the impulse to scratch. And you may also notice the impulse to scratch comes and goes. And there may be a, you may be right back at 
feeling the itch again, but you no longer want to scratch it. So it, just because the desire to scratch arises, it doesn't mean you have to follow it every time. You'll see that that's a, just a mental state, and that comes and goes. So it's a study. And, of course, if you're getting at that point where you're getting just so reactive to the scratch, then you want to, do it, you want to scratch mindfully, <laughs> kindly. Yes, there is a tendency to just feed the the itching mind, <laughs> the itching body. <laughs> let's get let's do the scratching now and get it out of the way. <laughs> no, it's really a. I love that you notice that, and it's one of those things that uh, that we realize as as we sit a little still. What's actually happening in our body? Itching is one of the sensations that's very common, and many of them we habitually and unconsciously react to. And the reaction tends to create tension, and tension tends to generate a lot of discursive thinking. And then slowly, slowly we become further and further disconnected from that embodied experience. So I hope you understand maybe the value of learning to settle your mind into your body. That's really the secret to the the byproduct of calm. Okay, the, the, another place that we tend to be very disembodied, surprisingly in a way, but it's just habit, is when we move, when we move to and fro. We're usually obsessed by getting somewhere. And of course, if we're going to work or we're going to the bathroom, as many of you probably feel that impulse now, there is a tendency to focus on the destination and often we miss the experience of, of walking when we walk or being, with, being wherever we are. And so the, in the Buddha's teaching of insight meditation, he saw the equality of learning how to bring mindful attention to the body equally and every, all the other mental states as well, but equally in moving as well as in sitting. So even though the statues create this kind of idealized version of, a, of somebody just sitting all the time, many of the stories of the, of the disciples of the Buddha and the Buddha himself were of, of, walk, of awakening through walking. And in my own practice, walking, formal walking meditation is where I often had many, many more insights into the nature of reality than I did during sitting. But of course the stillness and having our mind and body harmonized in, in that experience of, of staying relatively still is really important, but also equally important is learning how to be embodied as we take each step so that we, even when we walk, we realize we're not going anywhere in terms of we're always present. So the way that we do that in a formal sense in walking meditation is we, we choose an area about the width of this, this space here where everybody's sitting. And instead of walking with a destination, taking a walk as we usually do, we walk back and forth. And the first insight that you have is that you're not going anywhere. 
The whole point is to arrive at the step that you're taking. And you walk at a pace. Uh, one, you feel the steps. You don't just walk and kind of secondhand know that you're walking. You, you, f- you walk and congruently or, or concurrently know that you're, you're walking because you feel it in real time. But you have to find, we incline toward walking a little slower than we normally do because if you slow down a little bit, you'll notice more. You'll notice more of that experience of walking. And if you notice more, you tend to be a little bit more interested. And if you're interested, it tends to bring some more energy to the process. So not so slow that you're turning slow into a religion and and tensing up and then and then seeing somebody else who's slower and then comparing yourself, <laughs> which is often what happens. Instead, we find for ourselves individually a pace that uh, is both um, relaxed. So for one person, relaxed will be very slow. Another person slowing down very slow their body will tense because their mind isn't in sync with the body. So relaxed, balanced. So one person slow, they can maintain balance very well. Another person slowing down a lot, they start teetering. So relaxed and balanced and that pace that you can stay interested. And fourth, maybe the, what subsumes all of them is the pace that you can stay attentive. Relaxed balanced, interested, attentive. And then just walk to and fro, feel your steps. If it, if it seems like a lot to feel your whole body walking, you could just focus on the soles of your feet. You could focus on the soles of your feet and the top of your feet. You could focus on just the lower leg. Or you can focus on the whole, as wide as the whole experience of walking but feeling the steps, letting each step call you here so that you're just reminded again and again and again that your life is an unfolding of present moments. That's it. Please. The question is about counting, how I feel about counting. If you feel like you need extra support to, to stay connected to the present step, it's fine to count. Ideally, don't count. I would count to one to ten or one to six, and then start over so that you don't go into rote counting. Uh, but most ninety-five percent of your sensitivity, you want to rely on just the experience that you're having. We don't. We add mental noting sometimes, but we try to most closely approximate with the mental noting what what's actually happening. So you might notice lifting and placing. It's sometimes a substitute for counting or stepping, something that closely approximates. But there are traditions where counting is done, and and if it helps you, great. The whole point, though, is to stay where you are as you're moving. Any questions? Eyes a little bit ahead, hands relaxed in front, behind, pockets are just hanging. Most of your attention in the lower part of your leg. We'll have about 25 minutes or so for, yeah, 25 minutes for walking and then an extra five, eight minutes to, to make the transitions there and, there and back. You will be alerted with a gong to come back. You have the, the run of the outdoors, but find a space where you can 
easily walk to and fro. And just treat it as the same. Remember, here I am. You know, I talked about earlier in the day about Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Buddha, I'm, here, I'm sitting here just as you are. I'm the Buddha. I'm awake to the experience of sitting. Now, when I stand up, the Buddha didn't get left on the cushion. Aware of standing. And now I... Walking down, still the Buddha noticing the Dharma. <laughs> so it's, it is as though I have not left my cushion. Still aware, still present. I'm just aware of the step that I'm taking. And from time to time I will lose contact with that step. I'll notice that I've just drifted into some kind of fantasy. And when you're lost in thought, there's nothing you can do until you wake up again. That's why that moment of waking up is a time to appreciate that you're now mindfully present again. Instead of judging yourself for having wandered when it's not your fault anyway. It's just a condition. So please be gentle, merciful when you wake up to where you are. You, it's a much stronger practice than much, it's more pra- a more practiced habit than, than being mindfully present. So you wake up again and go, whoa, here I am again. I'm not on the beach in Mexico. And find your body again and then connect with your steps. When you get to the end of your pathway, mindfully turn around. And then you'll feel, if you're really quiet, you might notice a mental impulse to start again. That's a mental thing. You feel that intention to begin again, and then you feel the physical movement. All that happens naturally. So, ready for a little walk? Okay. So, thanks for your practice, and we will sit now in about 25, 30 minutes. Just wait for the gong. If, any, if anybody would like to check in briefly, I'll be sitting up here. Any brief questions that you weren't comfortable about in the group?
as people are drifting in, uh, I thought I would share the poem that I, I had planned to read before you went out walking, but better late than never. It's entitled Walk Slowly by Dana Falds. It only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still, and just like that, something inside me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper, and I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget to catch myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make a choice to stop, to breathe, and be, and walk slowly into the mystery. I especially like this part of the poem where it says, as many times as I forget. You know, each time you realize you've forgotten, as I've mentioned in various ways already today, each moment that you realize that you've been lost in thought is actually a moment of mindful attention, a, a moment to celebrate, that you're, you're now free to see where you're going, to know what you're doing as you're doing it. While we're absorbed in some kind of wandering, we're literally at the effect of whatever, whatever that stream of thoughts or feelings is. And until there is that clear comprehension, till mindfulness shines through and says, wow, this is what's happening in my mind, this is what's happening in my body, until we have that moment, there's really nothing that can be done. There's no wisdom that can be applied, there's no skillful means, there's no love that can be generated, or there's no mercy, acceptance, there's no skillfulness. I think I said that already. We're just carried along by the stream of conditioning. So that moment that you wake up is all important. And we encourage that wakefulness and that sense of being able to remain undistracted by immediately, not in a harsh way, not in a, not in a rigid way, but immediately letting our mind settle back into our body. Why the body? The body is always here. So it's a wonderful anchor for our attention it's a, and a wonderful support for calm, for focus, for non-distraction. Sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> it could not be more simple, but our, our mind has such a strong practice of complicating things, of going. And, and one of the famous suttas uh, in the Buddha's teaching, sutta means discourse again, or teaching. It's uh, from a group of sutras, they're called numbered sutras, and the, this whole basket of numbered sutras called the Anguttara Nikaya. There's actually a book in the bookstore called the Numbered Sutras or Anguttara Nikaya. And in one of them, the Buddha was asked by this so-called deva or celestial being who had this special power to be able to walk great distances and could walk very quickly at great distances. And he, was, he asked the Buddha, is it possible, Lord Buddha, to come to the end of the world by walking or by going? And the Buddha, listening 
carefully, he said, no, it's not possible to come to the end of the world by going. He said, but only those who reach the end of the world become liberated. But he followed that by saying, that's another famous utterance, it is within this fathom-long body that we even discover the world. It is within this fathom-long body that we cause the world, that we make the world. It's within this fathom-long body that we find the end of the world, the end of going, in other words. And it's within this fathom-long body that we find the path that leads to the end of the, the world. Not the end of the, the world, the, the dissolution of the world. It's the end of the the world that we fabricate in our mind. And it's the discovery of the what you could call the real world, which is not a situation. It's a direct experience. So we cannot find that real world by going. And our habit is to go out of ourself in search of the real world, in search of the end of the world. And in that, we overlook the the source of, of calm, peace, of freedom that can not be found anywhere else. So I think it's the same theme over and over. How many of you felt the impulse to walk quickly? How many of you felt like you were in the land of the living dead? <laughs> How many of you felt self-conscious? Okay. This is part of the adapting to the uh, retreat culture. As it's a, at first it seems kind of strange, and and it, we're met with our conditioning, which is to to go somewhere. And after a while, you may discover, if you stay with this, that it's a it's a really beautiful part of our practice to walk and not be going anywhere and to and to be able to notice our self-consciousness and have it just be another thing to notice as opposed to something that we get caught up in and then believe and something that actually rules our lives. So if we can notice self-consciousness and see that as a changing condition, as just a mental state, we don't have to, we don't have to land in that feeling that I have to do something about this. We can just notice, oh, this is self-consciousness. And then we proceed, and then that's, I find that very helpful in daily life to be able to experience embarrassment, self-consciousness, fear, and not necessarily have it interrupt whatever I happen to be doing. It's just part of the experience of being human. So just to, as a reminder, we are all habituated as to, as uh, Amy Krauss Rosenthal said, uh, to identifying our lives or evaluating ourselves or measuring ourselves by how busy we are. She says, the answer to almost every question, How's, how, how are you? Busy. How is your week? Good, busy. Says, you name the question, busy is the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but more often than not, busy is the simply the most uh, knee-jerk response. She says, as people, 
Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? She's, her attribution is to, she says it's because of the advent of coffee bars. And coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. We don't even realize that we're just part of a, a cult, a culture of busyness. And, you know, many people would think you come to a Buddhist meditation center, you're, it's a cult. The big cult is the cult that we are all just, we just swallow every day, that the, the way to happiness is busy. She says, as children, our stock answered every question. You know, how is school? What did you do at school today? Nothing. She says, I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. And we, we need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. She says, I say it a few times and I start feeling myself becoming quiet, decaffeinated, meditative. I start seeing in my mind uh, some ducks floating on a still pond. How do we get so far away from that? So we're trying to recover something very precious, come home to ourselves. And it turns out that home, as we settle in, is this natural calm and peace that is the natural peace and calm of our own mind and our own body if we stay here. So let's just continue a little bit with sitting. And I'd like to introduce a little bit more of the field of mindfulness of the body, but also introduce very briefly the second foundation of mindfulness, that, that launching domain, that, that, um, that ground for reactivity, which is the world of feeling tones. So we will continue during this sitting to utilize the simple anchor of our breath as a support to having our mind and body come together, which does create the conditions for calm, for focus, for ease of being. But for some people, mindfulness of breathing, the breath is associated with all kinds of tension and anxiety. And if you find that you're not able to connect with the breath and have any sense of sustaining connection to the breath or that you find that you're very reactive to breathing, feel free to use as your primary anchor just your whole body sitting and the feeling of the contact of your rear touching. So in the same way that you might notice rising, falling, or in and out at the nostrils if you're feeling it, you could notice the sense of the whole body sitting and and then shifting your attention to just the touch of your rear on the cushion or the touch of your hands. So sitting, touching, sitting, touching. And that also has the same function of putting your mind in your body and your body in your mind. So whatever your primary anchor, we'll continue to use that in our practice. So we want to find that posture that's comfortable, yet relaxed, upright, gently still, We want to start with the ever-present fact that we are aware, ever-available. And we want to 
be aware, first of all, of our sitting body sitting. And then find our breath, if the breath is your primary anchor. This is, again, the initial tool of our practice. Again, we're not trying to alter our breathing. We're simply using a short breath, a long breath, a rough breath, a smooth breath, using however the breath is presenting itself as a, a guide to feeling our body in the living present. And as you feel the breath from time to time, as one of the questioners mentioned, sounds will arise and become stronger than the breath. That is a sense experience that depends on your, your experience of an ear or hearing. And so when sounds become stronger than the breath, we want to simply let the breath recede, be aware that hearing is in the foreground of our awareness. And we don't need to think about what we're hearing. We simply want to notice that the sound has arisen. Be aware of hearing and be aware of what happens to the sound as it's heard. And as the sound fades for that moment or becomes less prominent or compelling, has passed away, we anchor our attention again in our breath or body. And also it's likely that other physical sensations in your body will become stronger than the sensations of breathing. And when they do, we allow the breath to recede to the background and allow our attention to light on, to connect with the experience of what that predominant sensation is. Wherever it may arise in our body, it could be tension, be stabbing, squeezing, searing, cool, warm, itching, tingling, vibrating, pulsing, softness, tightness. So if any sensation becomes stronger than the breath or sound, we let the breath recede, let our attention fully receive and accept that predominant sensation. Let's say it's the experience of aching. We could make a soft acknowledgement in our mind of aching, aching, aching. That functions as a acknowledgement and an acceptance of the fact that the experience is present, aching, aching. We can also notice whether that experience of aching or burning or stabbing or itching is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. We can sense the pleasantness of a 
sensation or the unpleasantness or the neutrality. But most important is that we feel that experience and notice what happens to it without interfering. Does the sensation become stronger? Does it fade? Does it morph into another sensation? Does it vanish? So we are not experiencing our sensations in order for them to go away. Rather, we are experiencing them so that we can gain insight into the nature of our sensations. And so that we can meet them with an interested, a relaxed, kind attention and to discover that they are changing conditions. They're part of our inner weather. Everything is changing. So we meet each sensation in a non, non-judgmental, non-reactive way. And as with the sound, when the sensations become less prominent, less compelling, or have faded away, in the service of remaining anchored to the living present, we connect again with the simple experience of our breath, of the whole sitting body, Again and again, connecting our mind to our body, our body to our mind. Again and again, waking up to where we are, no matter how long or how many times we drift into virtual reality, each time we wake up, we come back to the simple fact of sitting and breathing or whatever is predominant. Just this moment, just this breath, sound or sensation.
sinking into the experience of the body breathing, sticking to it, spreading out all around it, not missing any part of the experience of breathing in and breathing out, however it's presenting itself. And when feeling the predominant sensations other than the breath, we feel them intimately, feeling that quality of itching or burning, stabbing or tingling, sustaining our awareness to experience its nature of change. Just this moment.
if there's any strain or struggle or if you've fallen into dullness, just acknowledge that graciously, kindly. But feel free to refresh yourself and begin again. Remembering that every moment is a new beginning. No past, no future, just what there is can always begin again. Just this moment, just this breath or whatever predominates. Kind, interested, relaxed attention. Just this.
five more minutes. When you hear the sound of the bell, just be aware of hearing. Notice the sound arise and fade away. And when you're ready to open your eyes after the sound has faded, ready to open your eyes, be aware of the opening of your eyes. Be aware of seeing and then be aware of any other movements that you make. So you begin to sense what it means to have a continuity 
of aware presence. Our practice then continues in our sharing. Speaking, listening. Always unfolding present moment. Any of you waiting for the bell to ring? Did that enhance your practice? Or was it a hindrance to your practice? So do any of you ever wait for the end of the day? The end of the week? End of the project? Any of you ever... tried to fix something in your home, otherwise known as home improvement? You ever waited till the end of your project? It turns out that that sense of waiting, associating our well-being with the end of something, creates tension, creates an unpleasant mental state. Even though the idea of the end is pleasant on the surface, the underlying experience of waiting or wanting is often one of tension, coloring the present moment in such a way that it makes it feel as though we can't relax now. We can't be calm now until the end of the project. And we think that because there is some relief at the end of the project or at the end when the bell rings or the end of the work week, that it was because the week ended that we felt better. Why did we feel better? Because we were no longer waiting and wanting. So what we do in meditation, instead of making the end of the week real or the end of the sitting real or the end of the the day real, we notice, we expand beyond the story of what we're waiting for. We see that the bell is not the secret to happiness. We expand beyond the bell as a source of happiness, and we feel the sense of waiting. And just like that itch that sometimes the the desire to scratch arises, sometimes it passes away. When you put your attention on the waiting for the bell to ring, or any time during your work week, put your attention on the feeling of toppling forward or waiting or hoping or expecting or whatever that feeling of craving is, you put your attention on that, you feel it, you see once it meets what we call the light of attention, that feeling arises and it passes. 
and the week has not ended, and you may experience the same relief in real time that you may spend a lifetime postponing by being caught in waiting. So this is just a little sneak preview on this afternoon's instructions of working with different mental states, states of the heart, states of mind, moods and emotions. Uh, But this morning it was mostly working with the mindfulness of the body and a little bit of, of taste of... Any of you notice at any point in your practice experiences that you could just notice as pleasant? Anybody notice? <laughs> Not too many pleasant. How about unpleasant? A lot of unpleasant. Any of you just notice, oh, this is unpleasant without adding anything extra to it? Any, anyone notice experiences that were neither pleasant or unpleasant, just neutral. Something that we don't usually notice. And when we don't notice them, we tend to, that's often a time that we space out. And it's often the time that we start to feel bored. But interestingly enough, in the teachings, if you can begin to explore those feelings that are neither aversive nor, nor sources of desire, neither pleasant or unpleasant, but just, uh, or just neither pleasant or unpleasant, what we call neutral. If you can explore that, get to know that, that becomes a, a gateway, you could say, to the experience of, of a state of mind of balance, of equanimity, of evenness, that uh, is a, one of those states of mind that is very beneficial for being able to um, handle the craziness of um, and the stresses of our life, the things that, that present themselves, the, the losses and the gains and the joys and the sorrows, the pleasures and the pains, that we, if we learn that quality of evenness, we can actually, it begins to point us to this quality of equanimity that can sit in the middle of our deepest grief and our greatest joy, let them be felt completely, but with supported with a, a kind of substratum of balance of, yes, this is what's happening. Yes, I can experience this. Yes, I don't need to hide myself away in fear and dullness. I can open to my life with a, state of ba- with a sense of balance. So you may not have thought that the neutral experiences could open you to such, a, such an experience or such a, an, an intrinsic state that, we are av- that is available to us, but, it, but you can. You can all have that kind of balance in your life. And remember that balance in your life doesn't mean that you don't experience a whole array of everything, of all the, the feelings and thoughts and sensations. If you're human, again, definition of birth, leading cause of having a lot of feelings, a lot of sensations, a lot of thoughts. Any questions, comments, descriptions? This is the time where I can be a little useful, and then we'll, we'll take a little time, and then, and then uh, we'll have some, as, as if you didn't know, it's almost lunchtime. Please. Yes, my comments about waiting for the end. You had the opposite experience. Yeah, we're actually um, going in, okay, um, 
The sitting aggra- aggravates, uh, or it, reveal, it reveals an underlying old shoulder injury. I'm going to go with the pain. Yes, the pain started to lift within that last five minutes, and then you didn't want the sitting to end. No, it still hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I don't know. You, you stop reacting to it, it sounds like. Stop hurting as much. Yes, things will, when we pay attention to them, when they present themselves, they will do one of basically three or four things. They will get stronger. And to use your language, they'll hurt more. That's not our business. They will hurt a little less. They will hurt just about the same or they'll vanish. And none of that is our business to change. It's just to bear witness to that. And the fact that you did notice how that happened, that's the practice. It's not to affect any kind of change. The byproduct, though, of not of letting, the, letting it be, letting hurt when it hurts and get worse when it gets worse and not and get less painful when it gets less painful the side benefit of not interfering is that our mind becomes less reactive and you're more likely to have a reduction of the pain because you're not compounding it with reactivity you're not compounding it by hating it by wanting it to go by spending time wanting it to go away or waiting for it to go away which would be analogous to the waiting for the bell to ring so great. <laughs> Please. Oh great, we have a microphone. <laughs> the evil mic. It's not on though. Is it cheating to rock or sway? That's the only way that what? Did you so when you say rock? <laughs> this is good practice for our equanimity. <laughs> Uh, when you say rock or sway, did you intentionally rock or sway, or did you just notice a kind of natural rocking and swaying? It, kind of just naturally it naturally happens. So this is a it, sometimes rocking and swaying naturally happens, and it is a byproduct of being a little bit more having your mind and body a little bit more unified. Sometimes little feelings happen. We call it uh, rapture. The Pali word is uh, pity. Sometimes that kind of feeling is pleasant and sometimes it's not. There's kinds of rapture that aren't so pleasant. But in any case, that sometimes happens. And if it happens, then we, we can just let it, let it happen. Don't be alarmed by it. Uh, and you don't have to stop it. It just becomes the next thing to be mindful of. But don't embellish it either. Don't... don't it's okay. Sometimes, and this may be... A little too much for right now, but sometimes that rocking is a second hand it's a second hand version of some underlying emotion or mood 
So sometimes for the purpose of, of just sensing what's more primary, you may for a short time experiment with, with remaining still and sense what, what you may feel if you weren't moving. But that's only sometimes. Most of the time it's just a natural fruit of, of meditating. And so it's totally fine. Yeah, not cheating. Please. And when you say letting go of, what would letting go of it mean? Uh, this particular piece I would like to not hear for a while. Uh-huh. So to the degree that you won't, don't want to hear something is the degree to which you're inviting it. So we want to be able to, one of the ways to both invite it but not feed it is to simply notice that we're hearing. Just hear its inner sound basically, or, or it's kind of an inner thought, but just hearing and notice how you're reacting to it. And again, and this is a little sneak preview on this afternoon, but part of the source of tension that, that makes calm possible is our contentious relationship with reality. And the reality is, is these songs are coming. So we want to, we don't necessarily want to extend them intentionally, but we don't want to suppress them. That's a Usually inherent in that is aversion. So we want to be able to graciously know, oh, this is hearing, this is the hearing of music. That's fine. You can have that level of, you know, particularity. But hearing, and then just notice it as hearing and then see what happens to it if, you, if it's welcome. Usually, after having said that, you know, working with aversion, we also tend to like a thought, like a repeating thought, they tend to be, um, the repeating ones tend to have an engine, some kind of underlying feeling or emotion that hasn't been completely metabolized or it's just wanting to express itself. And like I said, we're much better at the secondhand version. We're better at thinking about things or even singing about them than actually feeling them. So you can use this song as a, just a, an open question, not, psych, not psychotherapy, you're not trying to get to the bottom of it, but you're just trying to include your, your body, include your emotions. You know, if I were to, what's the, what's the mood associated with this, you could say? And so you, you don't suppress it, you just kind of expand to include that felt experience in your body. And, and often there's some kind of mood that's kind of check the, the lyrics, will often give you a little signal or even the, the tone, them, the chords themselves or the, the notes themselves. And again, this is not in order for it to go away. It's in order to include the, and metabolize the whole experience of what's happening. So, yeah, it's not uncommon. Many people, you have, we have a lot of practice at experiencing the impressions of music and having a lot of emotional associations with with music, and in fact, I was just telling somebody that that I had the great good fortune of going to see the musical Beautiful about Carol King's music, and if anyone has not seen it, I wept through the whole movie. 
because it evoked so much of my, my own history. And, and it was just, it's, I didn't have a lot of thoughts. It was just this kind of heart opening of connecting with that history. And that's just part of our nature to, to do that. And it's often connected to music. So, short question, long answer. Please. If you experience discomfort, do you direct the breath there to relieve it? Well, you wouldn't want to direct the breath there to make it worse, to make it more painful. <laughs> so that's, that's a beautiful intention to want to relieve it. But mostly with our meditative awareness, we see that the greatest relief is in learning how to meet it without reactivity. To be able to, you've heard the expression before, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And what the Dharma, what the practice really addresses is the, is the optional mental pain that gets added to the inevitable physical pain that we experience. So we want to first open to it, first see if we can have a moment of pain without our mind, with our mind being balanced and open to it. And then often just meeting it in that kind of intimate way without the, without the necessity of it going away the intelligence and love that's embedded in awareness will say, you know, this could use a, a little breath or this could, this could use, uh, I could use a little change of posture right now. But you, you don't want to jump the gun. You want to f- study it first and see if you can find balance with it. Then you can use all kinds of skillful means. You can use breathing with it. Um, it's really fine. Mostly we're not paying attention to anything in order for it to go away here because that's the kind of bargaining. I'll, I'll look at you if you go away, and, and that's usually feeding want, the wanting mind or the aversive mind, which is really the disease of our mind of wanting things to be different than the way they are. So here we say, okay, I'll be, let me be the first one to die of knee pain. <laughs> Please, don't want to be too lighthearted about that. How do you find balance when you're in the in the working world where you do? How can it not be? How can that process of having deadlines not be such a painful thing? Well, you know, one of the things that I noticed about the way that I drive or drove sometimes. It's, try to make it past tense, is that um, I noticed, along with everyone else, that I was rushing behind the wheel. And I realized that rushing was a mental state. It didn't have anything to do with speed. I could still go fast and not necessarily be rushing. And the rushing was turning my fast into suffering. So it's really a matter of studying the state... uh, checking in with how am I doing this project? Am I seized up in fear and anxiety or waiting for the project to end? Or am I in a very skillful and relaxed, responsive way just zooming through it? We do everything 200% better when we're relaxed. And there's absolutely no reason to be unrelaxed while we're completing our deadlines. It's just a habit. It's like the habit of rushing that didn't necessarily have a lot to do with speed. It's just tensing. So I've been really working with for many years, 
just checking in to see, am I rushing? Because that's completely optional. Yeah, but you can't use that as an excuse for tensing. They're not, ten, they're not, nobody is the cause of your tension. That's what we operate under. We take full responsibility for our experience of the people around us. And usually when people think that other people are making you tense, it makes you feel more and more out of control. It's a, it, an interesting phenomenon happens on retreats where somebody's breathing hard or, and the, and, driving the, or somebody will say, you know, I'm, we're all very permeable, you know, we're all sensitive, and I'm picking up on my neighbor's feelings, and, you know, there's so much pain in the room, you know, and it's, there's truth, you know, there's a lot of pain, but as soon as we make it other, it becomes really hard to handle, and as soon as we treat it, okay, this is what I'm experiencing right now, I'm experiencing tension, then we can start attending to it. But if we, we're constantly attributing to our external environment, then it, we're, we feel like victims all the time. And I don't, you know, there are t- real victims in this world. I'm talking about in the, in the workplace kind of thing. And so it's, <clears throat> it, you just find that you can resolve stress a lot easier if you take responsibility and work with the feelings that are arising and not wait for the environment to change. Now, sometimes that, the environment itself is just so, there is so much stress that no matter how much you try to take responsibility for that, it's just the fire is too hot and you can't seem to find balance. And sometimes that's a signal that you're not working in the right place. So there's not, it's not a failure. Sometimes it's out of love and wisdom that you say, this is not healthy for me. So there's no right answer here. Thanks for the question. So we do have, we do have uh, lunch to consider and hunger. And I think you will be happier after you've eaten. <laughs> a, few thi- a few things that I'd like to recommend. One of the things that I, I didn't talk about at the beginning of the day is, is this process of quieting in an atmosphere like this and settling and awakening to the to calm and ease is a, um, it's a tender thing. It's a, it opens our, it opens us to our natural vulnerability. And it turns out we're just as vulnerable in daily life, but we don't, but we're moving often too fast to realize it. So a person who starts practice and especially a practice period there, we encourage everyone to make certain agreements about how we want to live together be together so that we're so that we respect each other's uh, solitude and tenderness. So we generally agree not to kill anyone here. To have a reverence for every life form, and that includes the animal life forms. Not to take anything that's not offered. To to not to steal. Uh, to not feed any kind of sexual fantasy or impulses. So no flirting. No engaging, really giving each other the gift of solitude and, and aloneness, alone together. Uh, not taking any intoxicants other than the intoxication of your own attention, which means staying away from uh, drugs, alcohol, and cell phones during the day. Number one intoxicant. 
and uh, and the last one is not causing harm with our speech. And in the case of a retreat, we recommend that all of you practice what we call noble silence, where you give each other the gift of solitude. And you practice inner and outer silence where you don't speak, except in Q&As and, you know, if we talk one-on-one. But in general, not to, to, even if you came with somebody, to give them the gift of solitude, to give your self the gift of solitude, of not being defined by your relationship here, to just meet life in its simplicity, just seeing, hearing, smelling, just attending to what's happening. It's hard to do that when we're engaged. If you didn't know that this was going to be a day of silence, I'm not going to prohibit people to talk during lunch, but if you do, go to some place where other people won't hear you talking and where people can be protected in their own solitude. But has everybody agreed to the general training guidelines here? And hopefully, everybody, everybody agree to take it home with you too? Not the noble silence part, but the non-harming part? Okay, great. Uh, so other than that, please be mindful in the informal periods. The transition from sitting like this to our meal is also a moment, a time for mindfulness. Eating is an amazing arena for insight, for attention, chewing, swallowing, burst of flavor, the helicopter, you know, the hand going in and out. Uh, Notice your eating. Notice the mental state that you're eating with. And try to keep that continuity of mindfulness through the meal. And please do a little walking practice before you come in for the afternoon. We'll have an hour for lunch and walking. And enjoy. Enjoy your food. And yes. L- little announcement for the CEUs. Um, I forgot to give you the evaluation form. So if you're getting CE credits, the, the forms are out on the table where you, got the, where you signed up. If you grab them at lunchtime, you can turn them back in where you sign up. Anyway, we will meet again at five minutes to two. So wonderful being with you this morning and have a great lunch.
Testing one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Testing, 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 testing.
Hello, everyone. We have someone that needs a Honda Civic, a silver Honda Civic moved. The license plate is 6WAW648. Is that person in the hall? Not yet. I appreciate all of you staying with the day. <clears throat> we have an, a, a, another in, uh, Honda Civic Silver Honda Civic. I'm a nervous wreck from the sound. <laughs> what would I do if I had a real job? <laughs> Just kidding. Now, I appreciate everyone staying with the, the day. And I am reminded that this path is sometimes described as against the stream and the metaphor of water and streams water and streams are used commonly in these teachings and when they describe the path as against the stream is the stream of the world the the stream of worldly conditioning the conditioning that all of us have operating internally and obviously getting lots of signals externally is a world that is associates happiness, as I mentioned before when we were talking about the bell, associates happiness with 
satisfying some kind of hunger. The Buddha called this kind of happiness that depends on satisfying a hunger, otherwise known as conditioned happiness or conditional happiness. If I get what I want, I'll be happy. If I get rid of what I don't want, I'll be happy. This kind of happiness the Buddha called the happiness of bondage. He called it the the happiness that is um, not free. He contrasted this with the happiness of awakening, the happiness of a Buddha, which simply means awake, which is the happiness that is free of hunger or free of the dependence on satisfying some kind of hunger. So the way the, the stream of the world says happiness is when your work is done, when the week is done, when you buy what you want, when you vacation where you want, when you meet who you want. And this kind of happiness, this otherwise known as worldly happiness, or as in the Pali language, for those of you who are interested in the teachings, it's called lokiya sukha. Sukha is the word for comfort and happiness. Lokiya means of the world, worldly. <clears throat> and worldly happiness, that kind of seeking produces in many people's lives lots of pleasurable moments when you seek after the satisfaction of some kind of hunger. You go to wonderful places, you meet with great people, you do lots of things, you enjoy tastes and smells, and, and the, so the world is full of lots of lokiya sukha. But if we, if in the, at least as the teachings go, if we put our faith in this kind of happiness for our sense of well-being, if we put what the Buddha called misplaced faith in this kind of pleasure for our sense of well-being, we will end up on a, a wheel, the wheel otherwise known as samsara, endless wandering, a wheel of endlessly hoping for, satisfying, losing, then leaving in its wake a desire for more, having, losing, wanting more, and on and on it goes until our life becomes like a locomotive, you could say. It can be like a, a wheel of endless searching that has within it little sound bites, little moments of pleasure. But, um, but obscures an unshakable peace that waits as the, the natural state, the unshakable calm that that awaits uh, as the very nature of our hearts, but we're so busy associating our happiness with what's next that we miss what's always already here. So when we talk about going against the stream, we say to ourselves, I am not, I realize that this calm and peace that I'm looking for is an inside job. So I'm going to stop going out of myself in search, out of this present moment to find relief. Instead, I'm going to turn toward the nature of my mind and body themselves. The body as an anchor to here and now, my mind as, as the attention that follows me, 
that is available to me, whether I go through happy times or unhappy times, joys, sorrows, praise, blame, fame, shame, the common element that is available to us in any moment, a, a real source of intrinsic calm is the very nature of our own mind. So as many of you know from the story of the Buddha, he, he, had, he tried worldly happiness. He had everything relative to his time. He had all the, the law, he had all the sensual contact, he had all the music, he had food. He lived relative to other people in a state of privilege. And most people, in the, at least in the, in the Western world, not everyone, but relative to so many places where people, one, could, would not feel safe to meet like this, or are hungry, or thirsty, or have, have true survival issues. We live in a rarefied state of privilege, and often we're so oblivious to our privilege and, and don't realize how many people in this world are without it. But even in our, our privilege, we, we tend to be... Um, we tend to get caught in exactly the same thing that the Buddha did. So he tried everything, and he, and his, in fact, his father was the, the big shot, the, the king or the, the big landowner, and wanted him to be a big, a big shot like his dad. And he said, you know, if I try to go into the family business and be a, a monarch, he said, for me, that would be like sitting on a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart. If I don't, he knew that it was inside because he saw that it was completely unreliable and unsatisfactory to depend on pleasurable experiences for a sense of well-being. He later discovered that you have to have some measure of pleasure in life, otherwise we don't thrive. We need to have our senses gladdened. We need to be present enough to be able to enjoy sights and sounds and smells, tastes and contact and solitude and, you know, togetherness. But if we make that, if we put misplaced faith in the pleasure of the senses, we end up endlessly searching. So he finally stopped, and he saw, as many of you probably know the story of the Buddha, he saw... I'm so proclaimed. <laughs> I feel like a Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm, I, I'm a, uh, in the lineage of Wavy Gravy where he says it, it, you have to laugh, otherwise it's not funny. <laughs> Is that me that's doing that? So we we have to um, we have to wait till the sound a little higher if you don't mind. Okay. So then the Buddha saw the four heavenly messengers. He saw somebody who was sick, ill. Somebody who was old, 
a lot older than him, and the person who was ill was of a similar age, and he was 29 at the time. He saw an extremely old person. He saw a corpse, a dead person, and that shook him up. He said, this is going to happen to me, sickness, old age, death. And it seems like everything I've been searching for to try to make me happy is also subject to the same conditions. Whatever arises, passes away. And that sent him into a state of shock and dismay. And he saw the futility of trying to find any kind of reliable happiness through just linking a lot of pleasurable moments together. He knew that there was something greater. Otherwise, there's more to life than just having losing, having more losing and then dying. <laughs> something wrong with that picture. But fortunately, he saw a fourth heavenly messenger which in the form of a renunciate, somebody who seemed like they had a real sense of peace, simplicity, and didn't have a lot, didn't experience a lot in the conventional sense of things, but yet seemed happy. <clears throat> when I say this, I remember this fellow in my group in the city is on 15th and Julian, and it's a neighborhood where there are, it has become a little bit increasingly, uh, from time to time, a, a homeless encampment. And I was sitting in my car noodling about what I might talk about on a Tuesday evening, and I watched this homeless guy very carefully scavenging, looking for something along the, the fence of the church where I lead the group, and then along the wall of a, across the street, and the person was so serene, so content in their search, just very simple, simply. And I stopped him as he walked by my car, and I said, you seem so peaceful. He says, you never know what you find out here. And he showed me a little jewel that he found, but it wasn't even what he found. It was just his way of being. And I saw this person who had nothing who was the happiest person that I met the entire day. <clears throat> How did I get on that topic? Anyway, so the Buddha started, started sitting. He heard about some teachers that could point him to whatever, that, whatever gave that person that, that inner peace and freedom. And he discovered some practices that, let, that are elements of which we've been doing here over the course of the day, having the mind attention in the same location as the body and doing that again and again, and then allowing our mind and body to come into harmony, come into some degree of focus, and notice that when we are here and we're able to sustain that being here, something in us calms, something in us eases, some connection with life, that longing is fulfilled to connect with life, and lo and behold, we connect with it right where it touches us, not from going out, but from settling back. But still, he experienced some states of mind that were quite beautiful and happy, lights in his eyes. But then he saw that even those special experiences were just a high-class form of, of lokiya sukha, high-class form of worldly happiness, because even the nicest meditative experience eventually would fade away. So that wasn't reliable either. But then he paid attention. 
very carefully, moment to moment, whether it was plain, painful or pleasurable, just what we were opening to the last time, pleasurable, painful, neutral. And the more he paid attention, the stronger his attention got, the brighter his mind got, until it was literally shining. And what we do when we pay attention is we're actually cleaning our senses so that we're actually connecting with life. We're so busy looking for it elsewhere that we miss that we are intrinsically light, bright, radiant. And the brighter his attention became, the more he was able to see clearly the things that he was paying attention to. And he started to see something very obvious. Nobody had to, he, nobody had to give him teachings. He discovered it through his own experience. He, he saw that everything is coming and going. Everything is changing. So it wasn't just this macro level where we're all born and die, but it's moment to moment things are changing. And when he saw that there was nothing that could be clung to, does this make sense, nothing to cling to? When he saw that there was nothing to cling to, his mind relaxed, no longer pushing away the unpleasant, no longer grabbing onto the pleasant. His mind relaxed, and as it shined in its clarity, he felt a sense of joy, a kind of happiness, which he then described as lokutura sukha, a well-being or a happiness of being independent, free, that didn't depend on circumstances. And as he rested in what's also been described as the joy of equanimity, of balance, of not reacting to the experiences that come through our mind and our body or the world at large, as he settled into that balanced attention, I hope maybe you get the feeling of this as I talk about it, but as he did that, he got a flash of insight. And that flash of insight was that the calm and the peace that he had been searching for, when he was no longer looking for it elsewhere, revealed itself to be the very nature of his own mind that the very attention through which each of, us is, each of us is perceiving, the attention that allows you to hear these words, to feel anything, feel heart, your heart, to feel a sense of connection, even to feel a sense of disconnection, the very attention that allows that to be experienced turns out to be its intrinsic nature, its natural state is calm. It's silent. It's peaceful. And we've been looking for it everywhere else. So everything that we do <clears throat> in the practice of insight meditation is to not just to bring a little calm to an anxious, worried mind and body, but it's all in the service of literally freeing us from this tendency this chronic tendency to go out of ourselves in search and teach us how to stay where we are, to stay awake and present in our life so that we develop the resilience, the balance, the open-heartedness to be able to meet our life without compounding the inevitable stresses, the inevitable sickness, the inevitable old age, the inevitable frustrated desires 
to be able to meet them with much more um, openness. So it's all about freedom. So just to say one more thing, if you were looking for just a little more worldly happiness in coming to Spirit Rock, you'll be disappointed. (laughs) If, on the other hand, you're looking for a well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances as much, uh, you'll be very happy at Spirit Rock and in your practice in general. So what this means is that we put everything that presents itself in our mind, in our body, in our life in general, we, we put everything to good use. We learn how to use every experience, even the experience of worry and anxiety, uh, strong craving, sense of grief. Somebody talked about grief. We use everything to remind us of our love of being right where we are. We use everything to help us develop this strength of heart, the courage to be with our life as it is, to meet our life without contentiousness. Because the alternative to this is this endless running from silence. And And this happens very innocently. Something comes into one of our senses. We see something, we hear something, we smell something, we taste something, we feel something in our body, or we think something. And if it's pleasant, what happens? We like it. Very quickly, this is human conditioning. There is liking that quickly follows. That produces a little tension. Liking produces tension. It just comes with the territory. Liking, if it goes unrecognized, is usually followed by, because a little tension, a little, a little, you could call it a little spit of wanting. We tend to want what we like. And that wanting produces a little more tension. Remember, the objects of desire are very pleasurable. The underlying feeling of wanting something is there's a little underlying tension. Don't believe me. Pay attention to this. Just the bell. Remember the bell. So that tension also generates a lot of discursive thinking. So this is a chain. It's what's called the chain of causality. It starts with just one of the sense experiences. The whole of our life is six experiences repeating themselves over and over. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. the way we experience life, the drama of our life, the suffering of our life is often an elaboration on one of those six experiences. A flight of our mind to some place that isn't present, that's either in in the imagined past or the imagined future, where we will try to find, relieve the feeling of tension that has built from either not liking or from liking something. So let's say you see somebody on the retreat. You're, you happen to be, if you're human, you tend to associate happiness in your conditioning with meeting that someone special. 
Any of you not have that conditioning? And you see somebody through the corner of your eyes, even though we've made the commitment to noble silence, honoring each other's solitude. You see somebody out of the corner of your eye that produces in you a pleasant feeling, reminds you of somebody you met before. That's perception based on memory. And you like that feeling that you have when you see them. And within two minutes or maybe a minute, you have already started dating, mating, traveling, hearing wedding bells, divorcing. (laughs) We call this the Vipassana romance. But it's an opportunity to see how just a simple moment of pleasure can easily proliferate into into this effusion of fantasy, a fusion of, of thinking that takes us way beyond the simple fact that you had a pleasant experience. And you're no longer actually engaged with that pleasant experience. You're engaged in the story of it, in the narrative of it, and what's to come or what came before. We do the same thing with, with um, somebody who, t- who triggers in us some kind of unpleasant feeling based on some conditioning. Some, like somebody had the you who was it? Maybe she's not here anymore. The person who had the, who experienced the sound, it had an unpleasant association for her because she thought that meditation is supposed to keep the sound out. So because of that conditioning, that view about practice, sound was associated with unpleasantness. And then there was a reaction to it, and then all this straining and struggling to try to get the sound away and get back to the meditation... And all of that moved far beyond just the bare fact that she was hearing something. We call that, when it gets directed at a person who produces an unpleasant feeling, we call that the vipassana vendetta. And really nothing ever happened in that except this proliferation of of moving from the simple reality of the senses to a belief that I can't be happy until I have that person or get rid of that person or whatever they're doing. So this is the, this is the mind, this is the way our mind works when we meet pleasant and unpleasant experience. And when it meets neutral experience, as I spoke of earlier, we tend to just space out. And when we space out, we we tend to enter into some kind of a, a thought world and that's the, and in that thought world, we enter what we call the, the realm of delusion because we start thinking about who do we think about mostly? We think about ourselves or others. We create in our mind the imagined version of ourselves and the imagined version of others. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to think about ourselves and others, but a thought of yourself and a thought of somebody else is not yourself and it's not that person. It's virtual. It's not real. It's a thought. Yet, to the degree that we fall fall into that kind of delusion, we literally incarnate in our thoughts and think a thought of ourself is ourself. So what do you experience as yourself when you're not thinking about yourself? What do you experience 
about another person when you're not thinking about them, when you're just taking them in. So we tend to overlook the experience of ourselves that can't be so easily put into words, that is always present and connected and in some ways awesome. And we mostly take the the conceptual version of ourselves, the virtual version of ourselves as the reality. But not one person here is reducible to that that narrated version. Each of you is too amazing just the fact that you are. So to the degree that we fall into a case of mistaken identity, which is called delusion, we lose contact with the source of calm and peace. This is going somewhere. It's, it's all in the service of helping us reclaim, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, reclaim our heritage. He says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to get ourselves back by waking up to where we are. So notice who or what you are after your last thought of yourself has stopped and before the next one comes. What can you really say except, I'm here. I'm awake. I'm connected. I'm home. Now, some of you, that may feel too mysterious or amorphous and might be a little anxiety-producing at first, but very simple, not easily put in words. So part of our practice is to get used to this, get used to the simple experience, awesome, unexplainable experience of you as a human being, as a... And the second half is to see all of the ways that you mistakenly leave this That you, that's a source of so much of our anxiety, suffering, is because, as one teacher put it, this is a, actually a poet, Hafez, in his poem called Stop Being So Religious, he said, What do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the imagined past. I, I just added the imagined. To the, a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And I wrote verse number two. What do people who are anxious and worried have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the imagined future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So stop being so religious is not going to stop your mind from going to the past or the future, but it's hopefully 
going to make a shift from being carried along, carried away by your thoughts of the past. And then the feeling that's associated with that, a shift from being carried off by that to being able to notice this is the worrying mind. This is the narrative of worry. And this is what worry feels like. Instead of making the future real and then reacting to it, we notice that we're futurizing. Instead of making the past real, even though it's a miracle and wonderful that we can think about the past, instead we notice, oh, I'm thinking about the past right now. I'm remembering my childhood. And I feel a lot when I remember my childhood. And that's fine. But instead of being carried along by it, we wake up to that experience. And then that very experience of worry and anxiety even enrichen our life in the living present. So you get the general theme that the way out of our, our conditions that cause us so much torment, the way out is in. But it's a, lot, it's a little bit more nuanced about how we learn to accommodate especially the difficult mental states such as anxiety and worry, such as anger, such as intense fear. The direction that we move is to be able to move beyond the story of these, of past and future, and to be able to feel that experience, to be able to know the felt sense of it as much as we do the story. But at first, we're not able to sustain that very long. So it's very important as we learn how to accommodate our more challenging feelings to be able to know that simultaneous or at the same time as some difficult feeling may be presenting itself and some story that may be feeding it, there is usually in the midst of our immediate and present experience something that we can find in our body that's right here that is not anxious or worried that's not angry, that's not grief-stricken. And we fer- we, we, so we do a combination of things as we open to our difficult mental states. We touch into the feeling of them, but as we don't stay long. We shift our attention to right now I'm noticing that if I just shift my attention to my rear end, it's slightly pleasant or maybe neutral. And I hover there for a, for a few moments. Are you with me still? I hover there for a little bit. Let's say I started this, this vignette. I'm sitting here. I'm teaching this class for the first time. I'm scared. What's the word? Scared. <laughs> I won't fill in the blank. I'm so scared, so worried... I'm tormented by, the, by the, how you might, what you might think of me, how this is going to turn out. But instead of feeding that little story, I'm going to first check in and notice, whoa, my, my heart, my, my belly is in a state of incredible tension. I just have to say, this is not what I'm experiencing, but just a hypothetical vignette. My, my belly is so tense. I, I, it seems like if I put my attention on that, it compounds, it exacerbates, it's, make, it's stronger now. So I, I want to just notice that I'm feeling that, but I also want to remind myself that the whole world is not a monolith of anxiety. 
literally a foot away, two feet away, my rear is touching this cushion. And when I shift my attention there for a moment, I realize that there's no anxiety in my rear. It's neutral. And I hover there for a few moments, and I am relieved that, that my, the whole world is not anxious. And then, because my attitude has softened, I can then go back to that, if it's still present, I can go back to that feeling of anxiety and check it out, knowing that it's not everything. It's just one of the, one of the aspects of the present weather, internal weather. So I feel it for a while, and meanwhile, because my attitude is easier, I hope this makes sense, I'm in a less reactive place toward this anxiety. I'm not compounding it by being anxious about being anxious. I'm meeting it with an open heart, kindfulness. I see that, that anxiety is a kind of energy, and it bubbles up, and then it fades away. And I see that that anxiety, when it's not fed by this narrative of what it means and where I'm going and what could happen, when it's just felt, it actually calms me down. I start to recover using the very thing that was sending me out of my body into imagined places. I'm using the same feeling to bring me home to the place I've never really left but the place of all my, that fulfills my dreams of peace. So I had to, I had to get here through a little circuitous route of not necessarily going right into the anxiety at first, but to resourcing, to finding a safe place and coming back and forth, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and slowly able to accommodate everything moving in the direction of being able to accommodate the feeling that is presenting itself. Now, many feelings aren't as, as challenging and as anxiety, fear, worry, that tend to compound when we pay attention to them. Most feelings you can simply go to, feel them, and whether they go away or not doesn't matter because you're getting stronger and stronger. You're getting brighter and brighter like the Buddha sitting with the joys and the sorrows. Everything is waking you up to the reality of the present moment. So now we're going to practice, including different moods and mental states. So if you need to, I talked for longer than I expected, so feel free to refresh your posture, shake it out a little bit. Hopefully stay in the room.
And just as an invocation to this sitting, famous poem by Rumi entitled The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as, as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let your eyes close softly again. Be aware of your sitting body sitting. Soft mind, soft body. Relaxing the head literally relaxing the physical brain, relaxing the cheeks and the jaw, the throat, the shoulders. As your attention cascades down your arms, relaxing the arms, relaxing the back, relaxing the belly, the chest, Relaxing the legs, thighs, shins, calves, ankles, feet, down to the tips of the toes. Feel your whole body enveloped in a kind attention can just melt into the openness of your awareness, like a block of ice being left out in the sun. Once again, finding the anchor of the breath, riding the gentle waves of breathing without trying to breathe, without any effort to alter the breath, just connecting and sustaining to the breath that's already occurring. Keeping the breath in the foreground until something else becomes stronger. Again, sounds, when they're stronger, we just let ourselves be aware of hearing, letting the sounds come and go without reactivity. When sensations become stronger than the breath, we let the breath recede and let our attention rest in the foreground of whatever is the predominant sensation. We notice the changing nature of our sensations. We notice their quality of pleasant and unpleasant, neutral. 
And in this sitting, we open to recognizing from time to time what may become stronger than the breath is the state of our heart or the state of our mind. Could be the state of mind of calm or spaciousness or agitation or ease or contractedness. Could be moods of delight, sad, easeful. Could be stronger emotions of happiness, joy, sorrow, grief, fear, anger, rage. Any mood or emotion, any of the common states of wanting or aversion, irritation, boredom, states of dullness, states of worry, states of guilt, remorse, states of doubt. If any state of mind or state of the heart becomes stronger than the breath, it often arises associated with different thoughts. There's often a story associated with anger or fear. We graciously meet the story. We expand beyond the story to feel whatever that state is in our body. We feel what wanting is like. We feel what aversion is like. We feel what agitation is like. We recognize all of these states of the heart and mind as changing conditions like the weather. We try to meet them with a non-interfering, non-judgmental, open-hearted attention with kindfulness. We notice their behavior as after we've accepted them, We've felt their quality and how they're felt in our body. We notice what happens to them. What happens to sadness when it is felt? What happens to anger when it is felt? Where do you feel it in your body? What happens to it? When any of these states of the heart or mind are no longer predominant or compelling or have passed away, we experience the fading of whatever these experiences are. And in the service of remaining anchored to the living present, we connect again with the simple reality of the sitting body sitting, the breathing body breathing. Again, no need to look for these different states of mind, no need to look for sounds, no need to look for sensations. But when they arise and become stronger than the simple reality of the breath, we graciously meet them and invite them in, even if they're a crowd of sorrows. Welcome and entertain every experience. This is the end of suffering. The suffering being our reaction to experiences, not the experience itself. Just this moment, just this experience as it is. Just this breath.
If you notice that your mind is frequently being visited by a certain theme, a repetitive thought, it's likely that it is fed by, driven by an underlying mood or emotion. And you're experiencing the second-hand version. So if you have a repeating theme, again, expand beyond the narrative to sense what the underlying feeling state is experienced through your body. You can even ask yourself, what's the weather like right now? And with whatever it is that you're experiencing, whatever emotion or mood, there's nothing to do about it. There's nothing to undo. You simply allow it to be received in awareness. Awareness is non-contentious. It's non-struggling. It allows the entire process to happen unimpeded. So we let every feeling and thought, sensation come and go as they will. In this open field of awareness, just this moment,
Again, if you're straining or struggling, falling into a state of dullness, you want to notice those experiences. What is that like to strain? What's it like to struggle? What is dullness like? Open to that state of the mind, state of the body. But if needed, feel free to mindfully refresh yourself. may mean a change of posture. But if you make any change in posture, to do so mindfully, deliberately. Again, can always begin again. Every moment is a new beginning. Now I invite you to stop meditating. Just be mindful. I invite you to stop being a meditator. Just be mindful.
So is anyone willing to offer a weather report? You can also include any questions, comments, descriptions, please. It was interesting when I said, stop meditating, just be mindful. Stop being a meditator, just be mindful. A huge shift. Could you say more about that shift? You be, she became present. Exactly. So, so you became aware of the, the cessation or the falling away of the mental state of trying. Exactly. You, that's exactly my intention, and so I'm glad that you got the sense of it. So periodically, you, as you practice, notice when, there's, when the identity of meditator is creating tension or when the uh, excessive trying. And one of the things that of, when we study our mental states, it's also a study, in this case, of wise effort, of the way that we practice. And, two, and there are two things that... Um, that cause a lot of tension and fatigue in meditation. Excessive effort of trying, excessive trying, and specifically trying to make something happen. In other words, trying to, having some notion of where you want to get to. Once we enter into that, what I call the trance of time, of getting to a particular place, some people try to get to where they have lights in their eyes or something. That very aiming for a particular experience is what the Buddha called greed in the mind. He said there are basically three poisons that poison our life and our practice. Greed in the mind, wanting what's not there. Aversion in the mind, not wanting what's there. And delusion in the mind is making it all about me or just being oblivious altogether. Greed, hatred, and delusion, the three poisons. And we can start to see that in our own practice. And that's what it either makes our meditation uh, a cause of well-being and recovering of our well-being and happiness, or it can become the cause of more tension. So I'm glad you got that. Anybody else? Please. We don't try to, we don't, we don't, we don't consider that intrusive. You said you were meditate, you were br mindful of breathing, and then a sad thought came, and with it you felt sadness. And then what happened? The two between... The, so you were, it's, it's as though you were breathing with sadness. And do they, is, breathe, is breathing or sadness ever within your control? What happens the 99% of the time when you're not paying attention to your breath? Body breathes, you don't. Don't believe me. <laughs> 
Uh huh. So that's. I think it's all meditation. Everything you described, it's so beautiful, the sequence of what you went through. Every element of that is part of the meditation. There's no, there's no experience that shouldn't have happened or no experience that you need to get back to. The unfolding of this practice is just that whole sequential flow of experience. You had the feeling of the breath, then the thought of sadness, then the sadness, then the mingling of the sadness, and, the, and then the feeling of out of control. That's just another thing to pay attention to. And then the feeding of the, the thoughts about fe- being out of control, being scared, that, then to feel scared, and then having that jar you back into a, a kind of vivid presence, and then back to the breath perhaps. Every single thing about that is the meditation. The tendency to have fearful moments in regard to meditation, it's often because we're just on the edge of what's familiar. So we often say if you start to feel afraid in meditation, it's like a little, a little gong that's saying about to learn something. You're just stretching beyond the familiar. And it's, it's really a natural part of the practice. And the very same experience the next time would likely not be it would say, you, you would be able to, as we open to things, you'd be able to say, oh, I've, I've seen this before, or this too. And then it becomes another thing to pay attention to. I wouldn't change a thing about your experience. Just keep doing it. Please. Yeah. Yeah, but yes, yes. We we don't ask. It's a similar question to why, and we don't necessarily. Of course, you're curious, and that's one of the ways we express love. Is we we love truth and want to know. But meditative awareness doesn't so much ask why. We let the why be the byproduct of the what, and we try to be as intimate with the experience feel the experience as directly as we can, unfiltered by memory, unfiltered by our associations or our expectations. And often that level of intimacy will just suddenly produce some kind of, perhaps as a byproduct, some kind of psychological understanding. But we don't aim for that. We're not trying to get to the bottom of anything other than the root cause of all of our suffering, which is mistakenly, mistakenly cling to things that are changing mistakenly creating what is changing to thinking that what is changing is me and mine and I. And it's this chronic habit of misidentifying with our experience and clinging to it or trying to push it away that brings suffering. So for to, to have that understanding, the why of things is not so important. But it's amazing how many why, how many answers to why show up spontaneously when we're simple. So that what you're describing is more in the realm of analytic awareness as opposed to meditative awareness, which is very silent and childlike. It just says, what's here? What's here and what happens to it? So we're looking at the common laws behind all of our experience rather than getting to the bottom of one thing or another because the getting to the bottom of one thing or another is endless. 
and it ends up putting us in a pretty perpetual state of what we call the project mentality. Like, I, once I complete the project, then I'll be okay. So we say, I'm going to be okay with whatever's here. I'm not going to wait. I'm not postponing happiness. Anyway, thanks for the comment. Please. You're just avoiding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's very common after lunch to... We, we, we often joke at Spirit Rock that it, after lunch it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. You know? <laughs> yes, did you notice there are many people in the room? The, the veteran... <laughs> one of the things that's helpful sometimes is to open your eyes and open them really wide and take in light, but... But one of the recommendations from the teachings in general is to stand up, to do standing practice. The Buddha talked about the equality of sitting, of moving to and fro, of lying down, and of, of standing. Equal opportunities for, for practice. And especially when you're dull, it's skillful means to stand. A little extra energy to hold your body up will balance the, the what's... Usually a lot of the dullness is tranquility without enough energy. So what you'll see during the course of your own practice in terms of we talk about effort to try and all that, that can throw our energy off. But also there's an ever-changing balance of tranquility and energy. If you have too much energy and not much tranquility, you'll experience a lot of restlessness and agitation. Too much, not enough calm. If you have too much calm and not enough energy, you have dullness. So if you see, oh, I'm really dull, what can I do within the, within the context of keeping some continuity of awareness? What can I do to enhance my energy? So some of the basic antidotes take a precise posture. So especially people sitting on chairs, this is the recipe for sleepiness. If your back is against the, the chair... So you free your back up, a little extra energy to hold your body up. Precise posture. Pr open the eyes really wide. But then you can also leave your eyes just with a half-empty, half-open, half unfocused gaze. So you're not looking at anything. It's almost as though you're looking from the back of your neck. Everything is seen, but you're not focusing on any objects. Just seeing. Sometimes that'll wake you up a little bit standing. And the other thing that in general in your practice that will help balance a lot of dullness is the walking meditation. Beside it being an equal opportunity for building the, the noticings per, mo per minute frequency of noticing, it also builds energy. So don't underestimate the power of that simple walking to and fro, connecting with the body, sustaining that connection. Please, last one. Mental greed. Yes, you're feeling torpor.
Yes, what happened to that shiny, bright Buddha light? And I'm just dull. <laughs> so remember, this is the, f- for many of you, that how many of you are new to Spirit Rock? Many. How many of you are relatively new to meditation practice? So you're sustaining a physical posture that is strenuous, sustaining attention that's often scattered. You're actually discovering underlying fatigue that you may not have even known because your life is moving fast enough and you've been caffeinated up enough not to notice. So often the first insights, like I said this morning, insights at the beginning are often bad news. Two things we tend to realize is how deeply tired we are or how, uns- how disembodied we are, how unsettled. And so there's a lot of restlessness and dullness, especially the first day. Please. Two is just feeling tone, just pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The elaborated version of our reaction to the feeling tones are our mental states. States of the... The second foundation of mindfulness is just called mindfulness of feeling tone. It's called Vedana, and it's not emotions. It's just feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And that feeling tone accompanies our thoughts our sounds, our smells, our tastes, our body, our feeling, everything. Every experience that we have from the moment we wake up in the morning till the time we go to bed, each experience is a conditioned, is accompanied by a conditioned feeling tone. We either experience it as, as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. For example, any of you walk down by the, happen to walk during lunch down by the stables, smell the horse manure? Now, for some people, that produces an unpleasant feeling tone. Others, that produces a pleasant feeling tone. So it depends on your conditioning, but that comes with every experience. Three is is mindfulness of mind, which is the state of the mind, the attitude of mind, the the mental reactions, the emotions, and our thoughts but we haven't gotten to the thought part. All of those. It's basically mindfulness of the, of the state. It's mindfulness of mind. Mind and its mind objects. You have no anxious patients. You have patients who are sometimes anxious. I hope you don't see them as anxious people. Or yourself that way. Okay. Well, if they have an acute sense of a reactivity to their body, then they would use some extra mindfulness. If you read the mindfulness, the sutra on mindfulness, they talk about inner mindfulness and outer mindfulness. So, so, so if a person is not able to have inner mindfulness, they will use sometimes their eyes, or their, they'll open to sound, or they'll they'll use some kind of vi- something in their visual field. But I didn't suggest what I was talking about before is especially with anxiety, 
the breath is sometimes very much tied into anxiety, so it can exacerbate. So I, usually, though, there is some place in their body, as I was saying before, there's some place in their body that's not anxious. So, f- Right, or your hands touching, or usually something, there's some place that's actually comforting. In the, even as they're experiencing in those emotional centers, anxiety. So I would first and foremost, so that, because so much anxiety is about being disembodied. So much of it is about not, having, not being able to metabolize the feelings that come with being human. For very innocent reasons, very often trauma or some, something that we couldn't accommodate as a, a younger person, and we learn to jettison out of our body. But all it does is, in the long run, is it increases our anxiety, even if it temporarily gave us relief before. So we want to initially, to the extent that we can, find something in our body that's not anxious. And there usually is something. And then if, if you can't find that, then you use an external object. Okay, I think that's enough for now. Okay, one last one, and then we'll take some walking. We've been sitting quite a long time. Please. They're overrated. (laughs) Just kidding. You want to know. So I'm curious, would you be willing to close your eyes right now and and just tune into, uh, just kind of find a comfortable place in your body first? like your hands touching or something, and just hover there for a moment. Don't try to do anything other than just notice that. And then drop into your kind of throat area, your chest area, your solar plexus or belly, and and sense both the felt experience and also in general, what's the emotional tone like right now? What's the weather like? Without... Okay, so I want you to just feel the okayness. What is, feel what okay feels like. Don't try to do anything about it or undo it. Just notice, oh, okay is like this. And just hover a little longer. And tell me if, if there's any change in the weather or what you're noticing now. Okay, I want you to just notice the, notice the feeling of ang- anxiousness and warmness, self-consciousness maybe. Just let that be there without trying to do anything about that either. Just let that be felt. Sense where you feel it in your body. And just as you allow it to be there without trying to undo it or doing anything, notice, tell me what you're noticing now. Okay. So you went from okay to a little anxious to okay. So you know you have different states of mind that you enter and leave, that come and go. But no, but you were saying that you don't have any strong emotions. Only when you meditate or in general in your life? In general.
No feelings to super anxious. Yeah, again, with practice, we mostly want to see our, to see our patterning and become more and more intimate with how it is that we function and stay as current as we can with ourselves. So it, you may, it may be that you, that you may, from time to time, not be so current, and then things kind of just burst and kind of build up. Um, but again, I was half kidding when I said that feelings are overrated. Because many times people will look in their practice for the, the great feeling. They'll be waiting for the big eruption or the big release. And, that, and it creates a kind of tension. So it's better to let it just be the byproduct of being open, okay, as you say, with whatever it is that's showing up. But if it sounded like the way you, with the tone in your voice, it sounded like there was a little tone of disappointment or a little boredom maybe. Is that any of that? So those are, those are mental states that can actually add a little tension. So even that, just notice that. That's, those have a lot of feeling in them, more than you may know. So notice when there's doubt or disappointment or boredom or I want something to happen. Those are actually, they're more rich than you may know. So I appreciate you saying so. I think I think we need to have a walking period now. So just 15 minutes for walking. Please take advantage of the of a little bit of momentum now and take care with the transition to walking so that there's no part of this next 15 minutes before the gong hits, no part of it that isn't onward leading into the practice and then come back and we'll speak much more about working with thoughts and images and then the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the last little bit. So stay with it. Even if your mind says, your mind says, oh, I've had enough, don't believe it. And if anybody wants to meet with me, just a brief check-in, I'll be sitting here.
So as uh, I've been suggesting throughout the day, we're in, engaged in this calming process, which is really none other than recovering this precious natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of our hearts and minds. And this is, in some way, the beginning of reorienting ourselves to the place we've never really left, but the place that we have, uh, we've imagined that we've left. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the day, that we are always present, but we are often lost in our imagination that we are somewhere else. And so we're simply opening that door where we realize we're here and getting used to it to the extent that we can take in and experience the whole range of what it means to be here and aware, which at first is a little shocking. We're aware of these bodies that we have not really attended to. They're often a field of mystery, of, of tension, and, and processes that we have been somewhat oblivious to. We've been caught in this idea of our body that lies just on the surface, that image that looks, at us, that looks back at us from the mirror. And we have, many of us have not really studied the, the wild, dynamic, ever-changing nature of our, our body as it's actually lived. So that's a big thing to open to and often a source initially of a bit of anxiety. Then we are opening to how reactive our minds are to the pleasant and the unpleasant, the neutral, and how easily we get into this chronic habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are. Did any of you notice that today? The Buddha called that the number one cause of distress what turns our basic challenges of being human into mental suffering is this chronic habit of wanting things to be different. Wanting ourselves to be different, wanting a sight to be different, a sound to be different, a person to be, whatever it is. And that this habit of mind that really has not much to do with the experience that we're having, the thing itself, it's just a way of relating to or reacting to what's present. This habit of mind turns our life into a life of a lot of mental torment. The Buddha called that kilesas, defilements, that torments of the mind. And then we, we usually project those torments on the world, and the world is the cause of my, my dis-ease. But what, we, what is confronting is that we discover in our practice that, that our own mental habits are as much the source of our suffering as some of the more systemic issues of the world. It's both. We don't want to deny the systemic causes of suffering, of inequality, injustice, you know, so many, so many issues that are born of our ignorance about our shared humanity. But a lot of our suffering is because of our own um, innocent, but our own mental reactions. Did you have...
wouldn't be we be extremely humble if we were embodying I think everybody expresses, she said, if, if we were fully mindful, wouldn't we be really humble and maybe just accept what we have instead of always wanting better, good, better, best and getting caught in the measuring mind. I think every person expresses mindful presence in their own way, and one person will express it in, in their inclination toward creativity of more and more beauty, and that may mean refining the furniture in their house. Another person will will look at that same desire for beauty and express it through some kind of uh, minimalist or simplicity or something. So each person has a different temperament. And so it's there's no one way that that continued mindfulness or continuity of mindfulness expresses itself. Although you what I could say universally is you would generally know what is moving you to do what you do. And you would be much clearer about your intentions, and you'd be much clearer about whether your intentions will bring you uh, more wanting or more, more wandering, or whether they'll really bring you the relief that you're searching for. And so it, it just clarifies your intentions. And then how it expresses itself is so different for each person. But, yeah. I have people, I know people in my orbit who have practice their whole lives, who, who just incline toward a very refined aesthetic, and I know others who, are, who just express their life with the kind of the most minimal kind of care, don't care about how they look or how, what other people think. It's just a whole range. Right? Some of our basic personality types and tendencies are pretty hardwired. So what was I? What were we talking about? Oh, about the cause of suffering being the chronic desire for things to be different, and expresses itself in in the grasping mind, which we talked about before, and the aversive mind, and it also expresses itself at this tendency to be in a constant state of what the Buddha called bhava or becoming, where our whole orientation of our thoughts are about. Our obsession with who we are becoming, what is going to happen, it's called, it's called becoming. It also gets obsessed when we're in a state of aversion to the state of non-becoming, the state of wanting everything to quiet down or shut down. The extreme of that is the suicidal impulse. So in either case, these are extreme versions of grasping and condemning and a very strong tendency of mind to become deluded or identified with these states and not be able to recognize, oh, this is the cause of suffering. So when the Buddha talked about suffering, distress, unsatisfactoriness, things that are difficult to bear, he said, this is a fact of life. It's not just me, not just you. It's universal. Definition of birth, the leading cause of stress. 
stress of being born, stress of sickness, stress of old age, stress of dying, stress of not getting what you want, stress of not wanting what you get, stress of loss. If you don't have all those, you're not one of us. And yet somehow in our mind, and he also had a prescription for dealing with that, welcome it. It's how it is. Be in harmony with this fact. All I know is when I see you as the corpses that you eventually will be, it makes me so appreciate that you're here and fully alive. Maybe that does that for you, your own, the reality of your own eventual passing away, this body. Maybe a little unnerving at first, but to live in harmony with that fact. Because if you don't, the tendency is to live in reaction to if that has an unpleasant association to you. It's not just reality. And then we, we tend to go off. And that state of becoming, it's very, it's very insidious. It operates in our mind in ways that are both unrecognized but also very humorous. And I brought along a version of the state of becoming that uh, we take for granted, but it was beautifully expressed by a comedian named Larry Miller, and this has been for many years attributed to George Carlin, but it's actually Larry Miller. He says, do you realize the only time in our lives that we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging, you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there? Makes you sound like bad milk. (laughs) He turned. We had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What's changed? You become 21. You turn 30. Then you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the great brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50 and your dreams are gone. (laughs) But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. You've built up so much speed that you hit 70. (laughs) After that, it's a day-by-day thing. You hit Wednesday. You get into your 80s, and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, you turn 4.30, you reach bedtime, and it doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Then a strange thing happens. If you make it to over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm 100 and a half. May we all make it to a healthy 100 and a half. So this mind that's often because of this very strong identification we have with the body. And our body 
is probably the strongest thing that we have identification with. Without our body, we, there would be no meditator. There would be no meditating. But meditative awareness allows us to see very carefully that the body that I associate with as being me and mine is not so personal. It gets old all by itself. It becomes, it turns, it pushes, it does that all by itself, not according to anybody's will or wish. And it ages and it gets sick and it dies in its own, in its own time selflessly out of our control. And to the degree that we keep that kind of identification with our body, that our, my body is me, we tend to have a lot more distress, a lot more restlessness and agitation. And what we do in our meditation practice is we shift that identity, we shift from being so identified with our body to being able to notice the body as a, not as a thing, but as a, a process of life, that a process of weather, a process of nature to be experienced, to be discovered. Discovered as, like the weather, a changing condition, and like the weather, not very personal. In the deepest meditative level, relatively speaking, in the conventional level, my body is my body and your body is your body. But if we look more deeply into our body, this body does not belong to me. As Jack Cornfield calls it, uh, it's a rent-a-body. And it, it operates according to its own laws. And so a shift in understanding allows us to see the selflessness of our body, the selflessness of our moods that also come and go of themselves, that there's, and the selflessness of our thoughts. And that's what this is just a segue into working with thoughts, that the thinking mind thinks the thoughts as you, if, I think it's a huge awakening that it seems so obvious, but we tend to not experience it. The thoughts are their own thinkers. We sit here and attending to the breathing, and what happens? Completely unbidden. Thoughts arise based on conditions, based on memory, based on whatever. We're thought machines, and unbidden, 65,000 thoughts, somebody, some study said, 65,000 thoughts get generated in this mind-body process every day, and 90% of those are repeats from the day before. But yet, because of a case of mistaken identity, we think, I'm in there thinking. I thought this, and I thought that. But when we look at it more meditatively, just attending to the unfolding of present moments, we see, ah, a thought arises. And then another thought, a narration, a description, a memory, a plan, a judgment, a comparison, an analysis. What are your top ten tunes? They tend to be similar for everyone, but slightly different. But these thoughts are their own thinkers. And in the process of meditation, we make the shift from being caught in them. It's partly part of mindfulness of mind. Instead of being caught in these thoughts, lost and identified with the thoughts, believing the thought of myself as myself, we notice, oh, there's planning mind, there's remembering mind. And we find out what our own top tunes are. And instead of 
making those thoughts real, we just recognize them as the thinking mind thinking. So meditation has nothing to do with getting rid of thoughts. It's all about a shift of relationship. If you try to get rid of your thoughts, it means that your thoughts bother you. And your thoughts bother you because you're reacting to them with aversion or grasping or identification, which means you're, you're taking them to be yourself. So we want to be able to make a shift from being lost and identified with thoughts to noticing. This is just the thinking mind thinking. Minds think. And to begin to, instead of trying to stop our mind, relate to our thinking mind. So don't wish to be rid of thoughts. If you wish to be rid of them, it means you're bothered. If you're bothered by them, they'll torment you. If you're not bothered by them, they tend to quiet all by themselves and show that they come and they go. And where are all the thoughts that you had today, right now? Can't even find them when you look for them. So part of our calming is to develop a wise relationship with the thinking mind because there's nothing that will cause more stress than fighting with our thoughts, fighting with our mind. So we try to bring loving kindness. In fact, getting back to the, the difficult feelings that arise, the number one soothing, soothing um, method for working with our agitated systems, our uncalm minds, is kindness. That's why I keep saying kind attention. In fact, if your attention is not enough, you should bring a physical gesture of kindness to yourself when you're upset. Rub the heart. You've probably heard this. There have been studies done that this both kind attention and a gesture of kindness triggers and it activates the vagal nerve and triggers the release of oxytocin very analogous to kind parenting. And many of us didn't have kind parenting. So we didn't internalize that sense of being held by a kind environment. And so we, we learn how to provide that for ourselves through our attention and our kindness. And we absolutely need to relate to our thoughts with the same kind of kindness because our thoughts are conditioned by our past experiences. They come unbidden. And it's important to relate to our thinking as a sense experience and equal to other senses. A thought is to our door of perception called mind as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue, as a sensation is to the body. It is a sense experience. We have five physical senses and one mental sense. And the mental sense has thoughts and feelings. And the, the feelings is simply the, the combination of the mental sense accompanied with the physical. So it's normal. So if you have a lot of thoughts, it's not a problem. How many of you have been trying to get rid of your thoughts or calm your thoughts? Stop it. <laughs> Try to just notice your thinking mind. Try to be interested in where did that thought, not why it came, or whoever, where was the why person? There you are. Not why it came, but how did that appear, and where does it go? It's like a dream. We treat them, they're, it's, 
the metaphor that's often used in the Tibetan tradition is treat your thoughts like clouds floating through an empty sky. They're, or like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. They have no more reality than that. Empty, bubbles, clouds. So let's practice with it, okay? Mindfulness of mind. So as you settle in, just to a reminder with the first, first teaching that the Buddha offered on stress and dissatisfaction and suffering, he said, open to this, sickness, old age, death, the difficulties of life. And then with the second, the cause of, of increasing stress through our mental reactions, his prescription for that is to let go. He said if you, as Ajahn Chah, one of the famous Thai masters said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So this, when I say let go, it doesn't mean get rid of. It means let go of our reactivity, just open to, let things be. So forget letting go, think of letting be. So we direct our attention to our body. It's always here. We let the breath guide us to a calm abiding, to a sense of focus. We welcome the sounds. We welcome the moods. We welcome the states of mind. And in this sitting, we welcome the thinking mind when it becomes stronger than the breath. And whenever we become aware of the thinking mind, we can either make a soft acknowledgement, thinking, thinking, or we can acknowledge the kind of thought it is, planning, planning, remembering, or just notice the thinking mind is thinking. Notice what happens to the thoughts, and when they vanish, we notice they're vanishing, and we connect again with our body and breath. Everything welcome in the open, sky-like nature of our mind that's impartial, Inclusive, not trying to keep anything out, but letting the body that's here be a support to our aware presence, letting our attention sink into our body, let our body melt like butter or ice left out in the sun. Letting go of the meditator. Letting go of meditating, just being aware of the breathing body, breathing. Feeling body, feeling. Thinking mind, thinking. Hearing mind, hearing. Just this moment. Kind attention. 
kindness to the breath, kindness to the sounds, kindness to the sitting body, kindness to the thoughts. Kindness to each other. Just this moment.
and you meet your present experience with openness and kindness, mercy. And you let this moment be just as it is, without elaboration, complication, And you keep it as simple as I'm aware and what am I aware of? And not look for anything but this. Can you cure your fatigue by not jumping ahead? Staying where you are. Being lucidly aware, a state of being. Just this moment.
in the last few minutes of our practice. I'd like you to gather your kind attention to your whole sitting body as it sits here and envelop, let it be imbued with kindness and envelop your whole body as though it's in a, sitting in a field of kind or loving awareness and lovingly bring your attention to the sensations of your head gliding along the contours of your skull, your face, the top of your head, the back of your head, the sides of your head, as though each gentle movement of your attention is like a caress of kindness. Gliding lovingly along the contours of your neck, over your shoulders, cascading down your arms, down to the tips of your fingers, sensing lovingly the skin and the flesh, the muscles and the bones of your arms. Each movement of attention like a caress of kindness lovingly gliding along your throat center, your chest or your heart center, solar plexus and belly, skin, flesh, muscles, bones, organs, lovingly attending to the sensations of your front body, lovingly gliding along your back body, spine, muscles, skin, flesh, bones, down to the sacrum area, your buttocks and the sits bones hover in the area of your rear end. Thank it for the support of your body today. Lovingly gliding along the thighs and knees, shins and calves, ankles and feet, down to the tips of the toes. Sensing the skin and the flesh and the muscles and the bones of your legs, feet, till your whole body is charged, enlivened, and loved with kindness and attention. And then dropping into that field of goodwill, the deepest wish that you have for yourself that all beings share. All creatures, a desire to be at ease, to be calm, to be happy. Make conscious that wish for yourself, saying inwardly, may I be happy and peaceful. And sense what that's like now, not postponing. May I be happy and peaceful. May I feel safe in this world from inner harm safe with myself, safe from outer harm, safe with others. Dropping into that field, the wish to be healthy and strong. May I know health, strength, and a wish to be able to accept my physical limitations with grace and balance. 
and finally dropping that wish to be at ease and to have a sense of well-being. Wishing that for ourselves and finally expanding that field of kind attention to include everyone here who has supported your practice today. Another cause of calm is to remember that we don't exist ourselves alone apart from everything that is that we are affecting and we are being affected by. So as I want to be happy, may everyone here be happy and peaceful, safe and protected, healthy, strong, easeful, and well. May I and everyone here be filled with kindness. May we all accept ourselves just as we are. May we all recognize the intrinsic or sacred happiness that is without sorrow here and now. May we all grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the inevitable joys and sorrows with balance and open-heartedness. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, including ourselves. May all hearts be liberated. May all beings know the calming of the restless mind. May all beings live with ease. So a few things to say. Uh, we still have five minutes left. And <clears throat> besides saying how much I enjoyed sitting with you today and sharing the silence and the practice and just this beautiful place, a few recommendations for daily life and a little highlighting of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the Dharma. So one of the things you realize if you've been through the, uh, the first three is the, um, some of the laws that operate under our laws of nature, some of the things that are true for one and all. And what we find is true for one and all is that we all have stress, as I mentioned before. What exacerbates it is our chronic habit of wanting things to be different. The possibility of ending that, that extra compounding of our stress with so much reactivity, the end of that. And the possibility of cultivating and creating a path out of our life that helps us to, to live more at ease with life as it is, with more calm. And that path highlighted in this tradition uh, in the form of what's called the Noble Eightfold Path has as its center this cultivation of mindfulness. But the cultivation of mindfulness is, is governed a little bit by what's called wise effort. 
And the wise effort is cultivating in one's life what is wholesome and helpful, doing those things that you know bring you, bring you well-being and happiness reliably, and abandoning the things that, that you know bring you suffering. Because it's not rocket science. If you do this, you get this reaction. And if it's a cause of suffering, you'll suffer if you do that. If you stop doing this, you don't get that reaction. So, you, so the wise effort is cultivate what's helpful and wholesome and maintain it. Wise effort is also abandoning what's unwholesome and unhelpful and making yourself mentally strong enough, heartfully strong enough to prevent even being in the same neighborhood as the unwholesome, the unhelpful. So it means keeping good company. It means practicing a foundation in your life every day of, of, of ethical conduct, of acting in ways that are non-harming. It's said, the metaphor is used throughout the teachings, that trying to practice meditation, wake up to the natural peace and ease that is your nature without being very grounded in non-harming, in being careful in your speech, careful with your livelihood, careful with your actions, careful with your use of intoxicants, careful with your respect for your life and others' lives. It's, if, you, if you try to practice without really being grounded in non-harming, it's like trying to row a boat without untying it from the dock. So it is really the foundation and part of the practice to, to weed out the places, that, the things that we do in our life. And we use mindfulness and the natural intelligence that comes from mindfulness to see what we're doing to wake up to what we're doing, not to be in clouded in confusion just because the world tells us to shop all day to make yourself happy. We look at ourselves and see that hasn't made anybody happy. And to listen to the Dalai Lama, he says, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he said, man, because <laughs> he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he d does not enjoy the present, result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So if we want to live, we have to slow down a little bit and see what we're doing and try to do it in the most loving way, not, not um, forced, not as a grim duty, as Alan Watts says, because it's good for you, a kind of self-punishment. We want to learn to dig, as he says, to dig the present, to groove with the eternal now. You know he uses that beat language? To see that the place where it's at is simply here and now. So he says, you know, we don't dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. We don't we don't play music to reach the end of the composition quicker. If that were the case, the fastest players would be the best. Music, the music is the point. Dancing, the dancing is the point. The same is true in our meditation. The point of it is always arrived at in the present moment. So stay where you are. Keep good company. Please come and sit with me anytime you want. Every Tuesday, 31 years in the city. I have some brochures for Mission Dharma right here. You can always come sit on retreat so that you really get, you get the um, full immersion. It's a lot to sit a whole day, but you build your chops on a retreat, and you'll see that, that it gets easier and easier. 
So keep good company, practice every day, sit with other people, and uh, do a lot of heart rubs, lots of heart rubs. Kindness, best, best soother, best calmer. Anyway, thank you for your practice. Hope to see you on the Dharma Trail. My next day long, just to remind you, is the, the, re, the residential retreat that's coming up is uh, full, but the next day long is actually on a Friday. So for those of you who are ever available on Friday, loving the house that Ego built, it's a day long, not unlike today. We'll practice not unlike today, but the theme will be more about how to bring some loving kindness and mercy toward these, uh, these maniacal egos that... Um, or at least the ideas of ourselves that are just inherently fragile, so they need love. So thank you. And anybody that wants the information on Mission Dharma right here. Also, my book, anybody who's interested in the book, it's a, it's a, it's a gift book. It's small. Somebody just reported to me at my group that they read it 16 times. And it's the kind of book you give away as well as read yourself. And in fact, it's great to give to people who think you might be off the deep end meditating because it's very, it's very, um, it's stripped away of all the Buddha, Buddhist language and just invites you to come and see for yourself and it's in the bookstore here and enjoy it. It's called Invitation to Meditation. Invitation to Meditation. We have, I think there are plenty of copies in the bookstore and you can get it online as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.